What's up, everybody? Metal Dave Glessner here, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster, bringing you another episode of the Talk Louder podcast. Today, we are joined by film director Boudreaux Partita and film producer John Jew. Uh, they are the creative driving force behind an upcoming documentary called Bloody and Bruised, The Untold Story of the Back Room. Uh, the Back Room was a longtime music venue in Austin, Texas. It survived for about 33 years, I think. And uh, it gave birth to a number of uh, bands, not the least of which is Dangerous Toys. And it also saw a lot of action from touring bands uh, that were on their way up. Uh, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Dangerous Toys, L.A. Guns, Junkyard, the like, Pariah. And uh, these guys had the idea. Megadeth, to, Exciter, yeah, Saint, Saxon. Raven, yeah. yeah, I mean, <laughs> the it, list it, goes on and yeah, on and Everybody on. from thrash metal from the uh, early to middle 80s, uh, just until until the place went under. So, yeah. yeah. It's one of those venues that's on the map, uh, rightfully so, right alongside venues like CBGB's, The Whiskey, Lemoore's, uh, what am I leaving out? The iconic music venues that uh, created not only, I mean, they created a scene. They were a gathering place for yeah. a culture, a tribe of people, a certain like-minded uh, audience. And uh, these guys had the idea to put this film together. And to their credit, they've worked on it for four years, four years. Have you seen the documentary about the whiskey? Uh I, I think I, I want to say it's on YouTube and I, I think it's, you know, kind of done on the fly. I don't know if it was like a theater release or, or submitted to festivals or whatever, but it's actually pretty good. Yeah. And, uh, and luckily the whiskey is still around a legendary venue, of course, that, uh, you could say the same kind of thing happened in our, uh, some, our fish bowl here down in Austin, Texas with the back room. It's just, uh, not on the Sunset Strip, where real yeah. estate is. Uh, our 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 club was in the ghetto, and the whiskey is not. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, Boudreaux and John and uh, and a whole cast of characters: uh, Tammy Moore, Adam Salinas, Ray Segrin. Uh, they they acknowledge that there was a huge army of people in their production crew, Penny Rock Productions, that helped make this happen. And uh, I know that Jason and I were both interviewed as part of this movie. There was 65, 70 other people that were interviewed. All of all of these people were either performers or former employees or people that were just regulars at the club. They really did a good job of going out of their way to find the people that could tell the story of the back room. Uh, it's very informative. It's very historically significant. Uh, they went back to the early days of the club, which I was unfamiliar with and did a great job digging up some people from the, the early days of, of the back room. And, uh, we couldn't be prouder of them for, uh, putting in so much work to put our little club on the map. The, uh, film is being submitted to South by Southwest for, hopefully it'll be accepted for a screening at South by Southwest 2024 here in Austin, Texas. And the goal beyond that is to go even bigger. So, uh, again, it's called Bloody and Bruised, the untold story of the back room. Um, 
I want to also say uh, that we started this episode on a on a very somber note. Um, we lost one of our own the, the a couple days ago, Nathan Oliveras, who was a huge part of the Austin music scene. He's featured in the movie. Uh, he was a champion of local Austin music. He was an accomplished musician in his own right. Uh, suddenly passed away a couple days ago. We're all still in shock. Uh, so we we do take a few moments at the beginning of the episode to pay tribute to our friend and, and a guy who contributed so much to the Austin music scene. So to Nathan's friends and family, we send you our sincerest condolences. And with that, we will get right into the show today. Boudreaux Partita and John Jew from Bloody and Bruised, the untold story of the back room today on the Talk Louder podcast. So uh, listen, guys, thanks for being here today. Um, I, I, I'd like to just take the floor for a moment, if I may, and, and start by saying uh, I appreciate you being here. Uh, I almost didn't know if we were going to follow through with today's episode because uh, all of us here in the Austin music community are still reeling from the sudden and shocking passing of our friend Nathan Oliveras. And um, I just wanted to take a moment and acknowledge him and his family. And uh, I almost can't even talk without getting. I, I, I get it, Dave. Uh, everyone is feeling the same sentiments. I, I think that it was uh it just goes to show how delicate everything can be as resilient as uh, our bodies actually are. You never know. Uh, but, but where you're taking this, his, uh, his footprint on our scene here uh, is undeniable. Uh, his friendship and laughter and uh, just smiles that that guy created as well as a body of work uh, is uh, immeasurable. And he's, uh, it's a huge loss and, and he'll be totally missed. And I uh, broke bread this morning with uh, one of his main constituents in Bobby Landgraf, uh, otherwise known as Bobby rock. And, uh, uh, he, he, you know, I mean, we, of course we, we, the, the conversation started and, and took over for quite a while about Nathan, but, uh, if I may say so and not be limited to, uh, not speaking for Bobby, but Bobby seemed fine, but he also seemed to not really have many words yet, like still in shock because he seemed fine. If you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I think we're all in that same boat. This this news is fresh. The pain is fresh. Um, and uh, I, I just wanted to express our condolences. Everyone here at the Talk Louder podcast, including our two guests today, Boudreaux and John, uh, we send our love and condolences to Nathan's family. Uh, he was a huge supporter of our podcast. Uh, he was uh, I always looked forward to his comments. He was very engaging, very supportive. Um, he, he and I were friends in person, but of course, friends on social media. And anytime I posted something about my son, he always had the kindest words to say. And if you ever were in the same room with him, he just lit the place up with his smile and his laughter. 
And uh, it's a huge, huge loss for the Austin music scene. He and his uh, partner, Dave Pruitt, are arguably the two biggest champions of live music in Austin. And this goes back for decades and decades. So this isn't some uh, recent development as far as his uh, championing of Austin music, uh, Austin bands. Uh, it's just huge. Anybody that spent any time in this scene is feeling the pain today and, and has been for the past 48 hours or so, and will continue. So, um, I know we haven't that? let our guests say a fucking word yet, well, but I, I just want to, I, I just want to say was, this, go ahead, finish Dave. I'm, no, but I have I was something about, to say. No, I was just about to open it up because, uh, Nathan, of course, having said what I just said, all of those things, he is obviously a central figure in this movie that we're discussing today. Reading my mind. Thank you, Dave. Sorry. And, and he, um, and on a, on a lighter note, he may very well have one of the most memorable and funny scenes in the movie. Obviously, we haven't seen the whole movie, but we've seen trailers. And Nathan's, uh, there's a segment featuring Nathan that is arguably the most hilarious thing in the whole thing so far. I'm going to piggyback that and say, I feel like, and you can say, well, not really, maybe, kind of, sure. I don't want to put things into your brains, but listen, I feel like just from what I've seen and what I know about the film, just forget that I'm involved at all. When you watch it and you see Nathan in the clips that I've seen, my question to you would be, did he sort of like start the, I feel like he's a, he became part of like, your guys are interviewing him and you guys are like, I just feel like, Oh shit, that's good. We need to rewrite our, <laughs> our scriptic here because he's got, he's taking this to another place where I wouldn't even, Holy shit. That's good. So he found his way into the film, maybe more than with little expectations. Please answer. So first off, yeah. First off, thank you for having us. Uh, it is a weird time. Uh, just with so, so much going on in the last 48 hours. Uh, yeah. Nathan was a whirlwind of a personality and I, you know, we, we instantly fell in love with him uh, since, since even when we first announced that we were making this film you know he messaged me like oh man i got some stories i can i can talk on camera i can i can definitely be a part of this and and i was like okay yeah you know oh by the way yeah dave's partner and, and capsize i remember him and and uh very quickly we were joking and and laughing online and uh via text and uh, and in person and when it came to do his interview he commanded the room with his personality and his humor and and exactly right jason that he just kind of uh he started just spewing gold <laughs> that that even it was just one thing after another it was hilarious it was endearing and and you can tell it and 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 dave i, know, I think i know what you mean about his his final word in the trailer when he says well, he's talking about the the back room you know I, I, what I didn't keep in that clip that is online is after he said that, and and John can attest to this was, oh man, that's going in the fucking trailer. <laughs> like I flat out said, that's going in the trailer. That's going in the movie. Like it was, and he's like, oh yeah, okay, great, awesome, <laughs> you know. And 
And that was the last thing we recorded before we actually cut. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, Nathan, I, I love me some Nathan, and he was always great to us. He, he was a big champion of the film. And uh, we worked on various uh, multiple projects together uh, ever since we meeting him. And, and every single time, you know, I got to do some PSAs with him for him. Uh, we got to do some live performance recording for him. Obviously, the stupid drama music video. And just uh, over time, he just became a, he was a really great friend and a really great personality. And uh, and, yeah, I'm going to miss him. And, uh, you know, the Austin music scene has definitely changed now that he's gone but he he made it a better place and uh and i'm just glad that he is going to be you know his personality his his person will be cemented in film for others to see and for others to appreciate for those that didn't know him personally i'm more excited about the film now than i was before mm -hmm. because of nathan mm -hmm. yeah you know? and, and, and we are we were reworking the graphics and the epilogue to include a tribute to him, a dedication to him. So uh, there is already kind of a somewhat built-in tribute to him and Dave into the capsize segments. But uh, you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna definitely I'm definitely making that call to to rework that and uh, perfect. And include that. So John, perfect. any thoughts or comments? Yeah, well, there was the, I was gonna say when we interviewed every single one of you guys, Boudreaux and I had a little thing that we do where we if somebody would say. You know, something like, like Budo said, he said a lot of gold. If somebody said something that we knew we were going to go back to, or somebody said a story that we knew we were going to eventually try to reenact, uh, Budro would signal me and I would write it in my notes and I would put it on my phone immediately. When we left uh, Nathan's interview, I had an entire page of my phone just filled with notes of things that he was just saying that were like, hopefully we can go back to that. And and when he when he first met us, it was funny because Boudreaux and I, uh, we were cologne and our cameraman, Brian, was wearing cologne that day. So we walked in and he was like, man, you guys smell like Dillard's. And that was the ongoing joke. Anytime we'd see him, we're like, it's the Dillard's boys. You know, like it was, it was just, <laughs> he's such a good guy. He was such a good guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at the risk of getting emotional and me being less eloquent than I'd like to be uh, regarding this whole situation, I just, again, want to reiterate our condolences and our love for Nathan Oliveras and his family. Uh, he will be missed. So, all right, guys, uh, we brought you here today to talk about your film, uh, Bloody and Bruised, The Untold Story of the Back Room. It is a documentary about uh, one of the longest running music venues in Austin history, and that's saying a lot if you know anything about Austin and its music history. Um, 30 plus years at the forefront of live music in Austin. Um, you guys had the idea to, to make a documentary about the, the venue. Uh, you started gathering some, some of the key people that were involved in the scene, some former employees, you had people retell stories, you had people relive memorable gigs, et cetera, et cetera. It's all the things a documentary should be. Um, but Jason and I were able to see a few clips in advance. And uh, I got to tell you guys, I couldn't be more proud of the work you did with this thing. It looks amazing. It is top notch quality all the way around. So tell me first, let's go back to the beginning. How did you come up with the idea? What was the impetus to make a documentary uh, on this particular venue? 
Um, well, thank you. Thank you for those kind words. Uh, you know, I, a couple years ago, I was helping out uh, the director, Jeff Sandman, with uh, a little bit on his documentary about the Saxon pub. And I ended up, uh, you know, I, I shot a little bit of that of that film. And in doing that, I was uh, I, I ended up doing a, a behind the scenes DVD featurette that came out on the on the, on the film's DVD. And uh, and man, I, I, the whole time I was thinking, you know, he did this really cool documentary about this one music venue that's still around. But my music venue that I always hung out with at was the back room. I would really like to do a documentary about the back room. And then so I kind of just pinged around with it for a while. And I was just like, man, that would be a, the biggest undertaking I would ever have done in my career. And then uh, so I kind of played around with it. And then I had lunch with John and he and I had been working on another film. And then I kind of brought up the idea. I was like, man, I would really what do you think about doing a documentary about the back room? I, I think with my film connections and, and, you know, and his music connections, I think we can possibly make it happen. what do you think? And he, and right away we started developing notes and a list of people to interview. And we were like, okay, let's just kind of play around with it. And uh, you know, nothing formal. And I was being interviewed on, on a, another podcast about uh, a horror film that John and I have worked on. And uh, the host of the podcast said, so what do you got coming up next? And I kind of just blurted it out. Well, I'm thinking about doing a documentary about the back room and his eyes just lit up like, Oh my God, that's amazing. And right away I texted John. I said, all right, I guess we're doing it. <laughs> it's out there now. And, uh, very quickly after that, we started lining up interviews and our very first interview was Joey Duenas from Moon Loco. And, uh, you know, kind of, you know, and that was in a matter of, of weeks that we went from that to that. So uh, it was kind of just like, all right, let's let's see what we can do. And uh, and very quickly from from the beginning, we brought on Tammy Moore because I knew we needed somebody from the inside. We needed somebody that had worked there, somebody that can fill in the gaps, tell us the full history uh, or at least as, as much as, as possible. And it just so happened that she was also a writer. So she was. Hey, well, we got our writer <laughs> for the film along with myself. And uh, and then we brought in Adam Salinas as well, who is a longtime friend of ours. And uh, he's a big music guy. And so he helped us locate uh, venues and locations to do shoot the interviews. And, and keep in mind, this is all just past COVID or right in the in the tail end of COVID. So stuff is still shut down. So we had access to plenty of venues that were closed and all these musicians and artists and, and staff people, you know, had been hunkered down for a while and they were anxious to do something, to do anything. They weren't playing. So we had the, the you know, the benefit of like, yeah, yeah, we'll do an interview. Yeah, come on, let's do something. And and that's what we did. And uh, and then towards the tail end of it, we ended up getting Ray Segrin, who also worked there uh, as, as a club DJ and promoter. And Booker, and he helped us financially as an executive producer, help us finish some of the reenactments that I really wanted to be as part of the film to help tell the stories. Uh, you know, we shot, I don't know, John, what was it, close to 70 interviews in the span of nine Eight months? months? Nine months, yeah. And, uh, you know, every weekend we were gone, every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we were gone from, from our families shooting different interviews with different folks around town and, and out of town and uh, just started gathering footage. And then little by little, you know, 
people sending sending me photos, flyers, ticket stubs, video clips. Dave Pruitt sent me hundreds of video clips that I had to digitize because literally on tape, on DV tape, that or VCR or you know VHS tape, and uh, and I had a whole dubbing station here in my office, and it was just gathering mounds of information, and uh, and little by little. You know, working on it over a couple of years, uh, it, it finally came together. And that was almost, you know, this coming March, it'll be four years of our lives that we started this. And uh, I can't believe it's I, I and, you know, we've been talking, all of us have been talking since at least four years or more about this. And uh, it's finally it's finally done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After yeah. all this time, it's crazy to say that. Do you feel like it just to talk about you know the the dubbing station in your office i mean first off it's sound it's i'm not calling your office a mess but it just sounds like a mess you know you got <laughs> stacks of tapes left and right just see a cartoon video in my head of you going oh my god you know another cup of coffee please you know oh, yeah. uh, you know <laughs> searching you know your eyes are bleeding you're trying to find the right cool clip of whatever whoever right um you know, could you have uh, found a better uh, hoarder of footage from Dave Pruitt? I mean, unbelievable stacks, amounts of history from one man. Yeah, he he is, he is Austin's archivist when it comes to yep. the music scene. And so he just... He, uh, this film would not have been possible without him. And well, we, we need to have Dave Pruitt on on the Talk Louder podcast just yeah. so we can get commentary of what his intent was over the past, like literally forty years of uh, supporting mm -hmm. live music and and documentation. Yeah, and he was he he supplied so so much. Uh, I mean, I would say a good 80% or 75 to 80% of the, of the clips that you see in the film in the final film are his, wow. uh, everything else is stuff that either people sent me physically, like, Oh, here's a link that I digitize of my show or stuff that I had to find online and get permissions to, to download. Um, uh, but I mean, it, it was like, I, I did have a box of nothing but Dave Pruitt tapes, both uh videotapes and audio cassettes <laughs> that was just like after another after, and i would like let it digitize and walk away and you know two hours later come back check on it digitize walk away and and you know it was it was a whole process i mean just the cataloging of ticket stubs and flyers you know every single every single photo every single item that you every single element that you see in the film there's literally thousands of it of these items and everyone had a, at least every single item had to have some kind of reference date and or source so that I could in the credits and also for our legal department say, well, so-and-so provided this and this is from when the, and so that when I'm editing the film, I can search dangerous toys, 1990, you know, McMaster provided this or whoever, you know, right. I needed it all catalog. And all of that was just, <laughs> countless hours of 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 busy work that you know it, it's part of the not fun part of filmmaking that nobody mm -hmm. understands right john <laughs> yeah. did you john did you did you see physically and mentally uh upheaval of your everyday life when you started this project oh for sure and that was the the, the, the... <laughs> 
probably the still cool thing was we started as we were going to shoot for the trailer so the the intent was let's shoot a trailer or let's shoot footage so we can put a trailer together see what the reception is from everyone and we found it so easy at that moment i mean it the times can't we, we never expected for the world to shut down the way it did so we always had this shell because we never knew how we were going to do it to shoot an interview at a, at a location with controlled environment no music and all of a sudden we were booking venues that were closed down and getting you know interviewees into the venues and, and shooting these interviews then by the time we knew it we had one scheduled every or two scheduled per weekend and we just kept going we never stopped and we it wasn't just for the trailer we ended up shooting the entire film yeah for all yeah. of principal photography in eight, about eight months tell them about when you did the chronicle oh and adam and i hung out at the chronicle for two whole days two different days that we went for a good nine hours i want to say and they wow. they don't have microfilm so they keep all of their their past you know issues in these huge albums and they're dated so you go into what they call the vault and they have an entire thing of albums like 1991 or july 1991 to march 1992 or whatever and we would just go through the i got stuck in the 80s because i was looking at all the movie ads i'm like oh et came out on you know, but it was just so cool to see and go through an entire history of the Chronicle and all the backroom ads that were on there from the first one. And I think yeah. they literally took photos and scanned every single backroom ad since the start of the Chronicle. Man, wow. It took them two days. Well, I yeah. think that's one of the things that I appreciate about the clips that I've seen is you can tell you guys were really meticulous about it. And, and it's like, this is one of those things where if you're going to do the venue justice, mm -hmm. then you have to do it correctly. Um, just doing some, you know, filming a few interviews and putting something together in the span of a year is not going to, is not going to tell the full story. And I think you guys would even admit, as long as you've been working on this project, even you after four years had to leave some things on the cutting room floor oh, yeah. or maybe couldn't get somebody in the film that you wanted or whatever. But I will say that four years, that's a, that's a true show of commitment. And, and I think the results speak for themselves from what I've seen. It's really well done. Thank you. Thank I wanted you. to ask uh, each of you, uh, Boudreaux, you, you mess, you referenced, um, uh, people submitting flyers and ticket stubs, et cetera. So in the course of putting this film together, each of you, we'll, we'll start with John. What was the coolest piece of memorabilia that crossed your eyes? Ooh. Oh, man. There was a lot of stuff. Let me see what I saw. I know we got a lot of, a lot of people send us a lot of, a lot of really cool pictures. I, I always appreciated all the dime bag and Vinny pictures from the club. There were a lot of those. Seems like they hung out with a lot of people. I never, I never got to see Pantera there, but I got to see the other guys in different bands playing there, but never them together. Um, man, one of the coolest things, I guess. That's a really good question because I saw so much. I, I I know that a lot of the photos that I've seen that people submitted, you know, to your point that there's definitely a lot that we had to leave out just from the time standpoint. Um, you know, seeing photos of Soundgarden, seeing photos 
of, of, of Pearl Jam and, 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 and all these other bands. And of, and of course, you know, like Watchtower and all that, all those fo- like footage of that was really cool. I do know that uh, Randall McMaster, he gave me some footage of uh, the Mentor show. Uh, and that was something I wasn't expecting. And I was like, oh, wow. And so, and that, and some of that made it into the film. And then eventually we had to edit some of it out. (laughs) But I I wasn't, uh, you know, that was one thing that he he actually reached out to me about that. And and I was just like, I was like, wow, this is stuff that I had never was anticipating where, you know, people said, I, you should really try to put this in there. So what what started off, and what I should say is for sure, is that this started off as a weekend side project. You know, it kind of started off as is be, something between productions that we can work on here and there. But as soon as people found out that, oh, you guys are working on the, doc, the, the bathroom documentary, it just blew up exponentially day by day. And now there's thousands of followers on our Facebook page. There's, you know, I think our, our trailer has over 13,000 views now. And it's just, it's become this organic growth of, of, of people's vested interest in, in something that they were really close to. And then they're a part of, and it was a part of their lives and it meant something to them. And whether they're an artist or a staff member or just a fan. And so you know that it, we the amount of stuff i mean that people sent me it, it's 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 immeasurable to see and say like you know this is by far my favorite thing because there's some there's literally thousands of photos and flyers and ticket stubs and video clips and and, and stuff that that you know this this movie lives on an 18 terabyte drive uh and there's a second 18 terabyte backup drive and then there's a third cloud drive which is like it, it so i'm just like as long as my house doesn't burn down we'll be okay <laughs> in, in your uh, say, my biggest takeaway i was gonna say my biggest takeaway i guess wouldn't be a, an actual physical object i think a lot of the stories that i heard yeah a lot of the stories that were told to me or told to us and i was there when Boudreaux would do the interview, I'm sure you remember, and I was, you know, I would stand behind him and I would listen to all these stories to write down, like I said earlier, all the little items that we would hopefully go back to later or need to. And some of these stories I had never heard. I had never known that much history about the backroom, although I hung out there. But our heyday was in the early 2000s, late 90s. I didn't know a lot of the story before that. And there were some interesting, very, very interesting stories that stuck with me. Yeah, and, and to piggyback on that, halfway through all of the interview shoots, I knew that we were doing something right because half of our crew, we we had a bunch of people help shoot this film. Like we had a lot of videographers, a lot of cinematographers, and we we called them the army of DPs because we would just kind of like, all right, you know, we're doing this interview with Metal Dave. It's down south. Who's available that day? And we kind of would coordinate and, and kind of say, all right, who can make it? Who can make it at this time slot? And whoever, whoever was available would show up. And so half that crew was, you know, pretty young guys, you know, or pretty young girls. And and so they were young folks. And I knew that we were doing something right because as they shot more of these interviews, they learned more and they were listening to the stories and they were they were absorbing it and they were like, wow, this is such a great, and even they would turn to me and to John and say, 
I can't wait for this movie to come out. I can't wait to hear what's going to be in the final cut. And so I knew something was was going right. And so that that was really rewarding to hear when it came to the interviews. I'm glad wow. you mentioned your your crew, uh, because one of the things that I noticed right away when when you guys uh, I was by the way, I was just honored that you guys reached out and wanted me to be part of this. And when I actually showed up to do the interview, I was thoroughly impressed with the professionalism. And I mean, you guys were sending me text messages a week in advance, telling me where to be, when to be, uh, anything I needed to bring, whatever. This was not this was not a, hey, show up and meet me and we'll wing it. This thing was down to the detail. The execution was incredible. And so and, and I'm just one person. And as you said, you interviewed 70 some people or whatever. So I'm glad that you give us a sense of how many people worked on this movie. Uh, there's obviously the core production staff. There's obviously the core you, you guys. But I saw with my own two eyes, you know, some amazing photographers, uh, some people that, for lack of a better term, might have been gophers or whatever. Uh, but you had a small army show up just for my interview. And I know that was replicated uh, multiple times a weekend, as you say. So give us a sense of how big your crew was. Man, I, I think now at this point, and I can't believe I'm about to say this, but it, it feels like I think there's at least a couple hundred people that have touched this film in one way or another. And whether they were crew members, I think I want to say there is a good 50 to 60 people in, in, in production crew. Uh, there's another couple dozen in post-production crew. And then the amount of actors and extras for all of our reenactments. I mean, there's definitely a lot there as well. And so I, I come from the world of TV production and, you know, that that's my background. And, and in doing that, I was very, uh, I learned how to shoot quickly and edit quickly and, but make sure things are organized because in the world of TV, everything is built by the hour, you know? And so I, I, I make it a point that every production I do is well organized. Lots of pre-production uh, is done as, as much as possible so that we're not wasting anybody's time. And, you know, we're as efficient as possible in, 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 in capturing the story in this case. Um, and, and so I take real pride in, in making sure that everything is as pro as possible um, because that's what people expect. And, 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 and my name's on this, John's name is on this. And, and obviously Penny Rock being the, the production company behind this, uh, I, I, I take real, you know, it's, it, I take a lot of pride in that. And so, and this is with everything we do, with every music video that we do, with every commercial that I do, with whatever it is, a short film, uh, you know, it, it's, it, I make it a point that it's not going to be half-assed. And, and, you know, what you mentioned that earlier, Dave, that, you know, it's not something you just kind of wing. It, it's something that's very thought out and methodical and, you know, I make it a point to, if it's not ready, it's not ready. <laughs> you know, like we, if, if it needs to be worked on some more, it'll be worked on some more. And, you know, the biggest, the biggest cost of this entire film was time, you know, everybody's time, my time. Yeah. John, so, tell us a, tell us a daily, like just pick a weekend that sure. was a little bit, maybe seemingly somewhat, if, if the word even fits overbearing for you, like how many hours did you put, you know, it sounds to me like uh, there were some hefty hours, uh, long hours 
and and what what is a, a life in the in the day of of you know explain give us an insight like a fly on the wall of a full day of what uh boudreaux's got you fucking doing you know <laughs> what are you okay. doing what are you doing all day friday saturday and sunday what are you what are you doing and and uh and when you take a break what is it is it coffee is it a sandwich is it uh, are you going through your notes and compiling them tell us okay so for instance it was january 2020 jason mcmaster says i'm available on this date and I say, okay, how, where, what part of town do you live in? Uh, then we tried to find a venue. We had a list of venues that we wanted to go to. And we say, hey, this one looks good at Barflies. So we call Barflies. Hey, can we secure the venue? Then we get back to you and say, yes, uh, January 15th, you know, just throwing that, guessing. Sure, uh, sure. We'll, we'll meet at Barflies. At what time works for you? You say noon. We tell everybody noon. Then we jump on our group chat. Then we have a production group chat with all of our army on there. And I say, hey, who's available to be at Barflies on Airport Boulevard on January 15th at this time? And then everybody chimes in. We know how many people we need. And we tell so-and-so individually, hey, hey, um, you're going to be here with us. I need you to do this. I need you to do this. Then we need a photographer. Then we need whatever. So we put that on a call sheet. And I reach back out to you. And I say, hey, I'll send you the details once they're ready. And we build our little day. But then at the same time, hey, Jason McMaster is available January 15th. That's a Friday. Can we get somebody January 16th, which is a Saturday? And we shoot two interviews that weekend. We build another crew or we use the same people. So we were trying to do two, knock out two every weekend. So we would put either Friday or Saturday or Saturday and Sunday, whatever worked. And then we set it up and we head to the shoot. We, we, you know, we set up our equipment, get the interview in. I get you to sign paperwork, we talk, get every, and it was the same thing every time. And sometimes we would go from one interview straight to another one in the afternoon. Yeah, how long of a day is all, everything yeah. you just said, if you double sure. that up and you have to change location, what's your day look like? The entire day would be busy. So I would get to Boudreaux's uh, an hour before we had to be at a location, load up the truck with the equipment. Then we'd head, and I'd be, the entire time he's driving, I'm in touch with the crew. Hey, you guys going to be there? You remember it's here or they'll reach out. Hey, I'm running a little bit late. Well, then I need you to pick this up or whatever. And then from there, we, you know, I, we leave the house. I probably leave like by nine in the morning for a noon interview. And then we'd be done with that first interview by about two, three o'clock load up. And if we had another one, it would be another three hours, you know, so it'd be an entire day just being gone entire Saturday entire yeah, friday there would be times that we would leave in the morning and get back at in at, at nighttime and uh it you know it, that it was kind of a thing like our wives were kind of like well this is gonna kind of gonna be the regular for a couple months <laughs> no, I, so, I, I didn't see any catering dave did you see any catering that day i, I did not but they did buy me a couple lone star beers so i see that I, I i like how you're making sure the can is pointed at the camera the, did you get in this logo <laughs> i want to get a free endorsement i get an endorsement here yeah, yeah that's that's all them i just did the drinking smart smart <laughs> it, smart it, it seemed, the product placement yeah it seems like every every production we did for it with with dave we had some kind of beer present well that sounds right that sounds right to me yeah so, you got to get me out of the house some way man yeah I mean, yeah. yeah so in, uh, your, in your full go ahead i'm sorry i'm sorry i was going to say how boudreaux said earlier that 
when he's not content with, with something and we'll keep going. And it's very evident in that because we shot this to hopefully submit to South by Southwest 2023. Yeah. And at some point in time in 2022, we decided that we weren't ready and we weren't shooting this for a film festival. We were shooting it to be the right thing that we wanted all along. And if we weren't ready, we were going to postpone it for a year. And that's what we did. You know, yeah. I had the to kind of not not to get off topic at all. I've always thought that, you know, it, a lot of the and I'm uh, obvious. It's obvious that I'm talking about being in a band and writing your own material. And and I, I it's there seemed to be a time and and I've been out of the South by game for many 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 years. Uh, but it seemed for a while that bands would change their the way they did things just because South by Southwest was about to happen. Let's do this so we can be in South by let's do this so we can have some product and blah, blah, blah. They changed their whole MO, their whole life. And they bought, I bought this outfit for South by Southwest and I'm not, that's, that's fine. That's fine. But you don't this back to your film. You don't live your life for the the festival you're going to submit to because you're going to your shit you want it to go to the to these guys that you want to submit to the world you don't want to submit so you can continue your big fish little pond life uh -huh. the world is your stage and not just you know barflies or headhunters or emos or the back room or wherever it is you're going to play it's not about that. It's about your world is is the world, not just this thing you're about to do. So it's good to hear you know what and where you, you know, maybe you 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 were smart enough to see early on. You could back up and go, wait a minute, this this is not about getting it into a film festival. This is about telling a story. This is not a demo I'm making a fucking double album right now. You know, yeah. I'm 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 making Beatles the White Album. You know, yeah. I'm making Use Your album. Illusion one and two right now, motherfucker. This yeah. is Kiss Alive one. This is not. <laughs> you know, you want to tell the story of like boom. You just yeah. want, don't want to go. Oh shit! Here's some. You know, here's two songs. No. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it was, I I, I was the one that made that call and said you know what, this movie, and I, this is what I told them in their meeting. I said, this movie is too big. Like it, 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 it deserves more time and I'm not going to rush it to have something that's half-assed. There's too many names yeah. associated with this film and too many eyeballs on this now that if I don't feel it's ready, I, I, I'm not going to put it out there just to meet a South by deadline. So I said, yeah. you know what, let's wait a year. It'll help us. It'll help us uh, gain some more traction anyways with people, help increase the buzz. It'll give me more time in editing and post-production. And then we'll probably, you know, we can try to acquire some more funding on the way. And that's exactly what happened when we, you know, with, with Ray Seger and joining it as executive producer in that last year and a half, when he signed on, you know, he's the one that really helped us financially to get all of the reenactments shot, you know? And uh, so he, the good things came out of that year. And, uh, and in doing that, you know, 
the film ended up being done. And, um, and I don't know, I don't think I've told you guys this, uh, but you know, when the film was actually completed, I want to say what John do like in, in April or May or something like that. Yeah, it was April. Yeah. So like the film, the first final cut of the film was actually done, you know, early summer or whatever. And the initial cut was four hours long. Yeah. That's what I've heard. Yeah. And it was, it was just crazy packed. And that's, and that's because that's what I felt was a doable, you know, I thought I, I, I was just marrying all the scenes together. I didn't, had no concept of how long the film would end up being. But when, when the initial breakdown and timeline of the film was put together, it was four hours long. And I said, well, obviously, I can't submit that to South by. And so I cut it down to two and a half. And at two and a half, it still felt like a behemoth of a film. And we were comfortable with that. And then I, I slightly trimmed it to 224. Um, and then our post-production house said, well, give it a couple more minutes trim. And then, so we ended up at 2.14. And, and then finally at, at 2.14, the post-production house and our production team, you know, we were looking at budgets and we we're looking at South by's programming blocks and everything. And then, so they highly suggested, well, according to your budget and what would increase your chances with South by, seeing that you want that to be your old premiere, um, you know, you really should trim another 30 minutes. And at that point, that's when I was really kind of like, God damn, man, like now it's really hurting. And, uh, and, 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 and one phrase that I had brought to the group, which is pretty popular amongst writers, and, and, and you guys might know this, is, is uh, I brought up the phrase, uh, kill your darlings. Kill your uh, babies, yep. Yeah, and then so, well. so I had to kill a lot, a lot of darlings along the way. And a lot of favorite scenes, and I had to trim a lot of stuff. And, and this is all stuff that you take the time to book actors and and pay them and props and reenactments and and or just interviews. And, and some interviews, you know, I, I want to take the, the I want to say that about ninety five percent of the people that we interviewed, ninety to ninety five percent of the people we interviewed, made it into the final film. So there's only a handful of people that actually didn't make it into the final cut. Hmm. But and it's not from a you know, this person wasn't as good or whatever like that. It's just a matter of, as the director, I have to make those decisions to do what's best for the film. The story. Story. Yeah. And and for, you know, obviously for programming and for, for time allotment and from what our budget is, you know. it's it, I make that call. And and so, uh, you know, sometimes they're tough decisions. and uh, But I have to do what's best for the film. And so... You know, it, we ended up at a 144. It's, it's an hour and 44 minutes long now. It is wow. a piece that moves. It's 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 educational. It's entertaining. It's informative. It's endearing and it's emotional. emotional. You know, yeah. so I, I think it hits all of those points that, you know, we I think it really is going to be touching for the people that were a part of it, part of the scene and a part of, of the back room to to see this. 144 and of course there's going to be those people that you know well you didn't touch on this band or you didn't talk about that man or this event and i'm like well you know yeah that's what i was alluding that's what i was alluding to earlier even after four years of work you know you're gonna either you yourself are gonna go man i i really wish i could have put this in or that in or or whatever or someone's gonna call it out but you are up against uh certain parameters uh, you you were you you made the call a couple years ago to prolong your your self inflicted deadline, 
And, and I, I think that was a wise call. And you just answered a bunch of my questions because as a writer myself, I understand I, when you said you guys might've heard this phrase, I knew exactly where you were going. I understand killing your babies. Cause I've had stories that I've written that, you know, were 1500 words and the space only allowed for 800. I'm like, Jesus, how do I cut 600, 700 words out of this? This is a masterpiece the way it is. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, when, man, four hours down to 144. That's got to be grueling, man. I mean, that, that's that got to be maybe one of the most difficult parts of the whole thing. Forget every weekend is booked for three years and you're running all over town and, you know, whatnot, securing interviews and venues and all this stuff. Having that finished product at four hours and then trying to get it down to an hour 45, that has just got to be painful. It, it was. It was. You know, there's there's a point where I had to like walk away and just oh kind God. of yeah. and I and I know all of us that work in the creative field, you have to do that and you have to separate yourself from from the work for a little bit and just, you know, take some time off from it and, you know, step away and then just kind of do some self-reflecting and then watch it again and say and make the call of, all right, well, I think the story still moves. And I think the emotions still work if I can take this out. Let me see. And I literally went through the entire film scene by scene and trimmed fat as best I could. Yeah. And, and that meant trimming some, some, some pieces that I really, really loved. And, you know, it, it was, it was heartbreaking, but again, that's a part of the filmmaking <laughs> process. Yeah. And, and what's important is the final product. <laughs> Do you so editing feel- is a very is a is an extremely tough job, and I know Jason can speak to this as a musician. I mean, I'm sure Jason's had songs that he thought were worthy of being on an album, but the album either only called for so much, or only was budgeted for so much, or whatever, and yeah, he had re- to kill his babies. So it's relative for sure. We all the, understand that. Yeah. Yeah. The um, do do you feel like uh, John? Do you do you think that um there might've been some moments that you, both of you guys, I guess it goes to both of you guys where, you know, you're trimming and, you know, John's like, no dude, you gotta, you gotta keep that part. You can trim over here, but you gotta fucking keep that little bit. Was there moments where you guys not argue, but like where John was keeping you in check, you know what I mean? By way of like, dude, come on. That's a great question. The way it would work was Boudreaux would edit a clip and then he'd share it with us and then we'd all have something to say or whatnot. And and yeah, there were times, maybe me not so much because I understood, you know, where we we're going. There were some, you know, and um, there were some sometimes that, you know, I wish we could have a little bit more of this. So we would move stuff around or it wasn't necessarily what we cut, but, you know, the fact that we were trying to include as we didn't want to waste anyone's time. So we try to include as much of everyone somewhere in some way, shape or form as much as we could. So there were times that we would be talking back and forth and say, you know, we can, maybe we let go of this darling and maybe we put this one somewhere else. And that that's the way it played out. I think we were all really fair with it. And Boudreaux had had a vision and he would send it to us and then we'd comment on that. And that's how that would work out. And, and there's, go ahead. There, there were some times that, you know, John would say, hey, you didn't lose this section, did you? And that's, that's what that's the gold I was looking for. Yeah. Like, like you didn't lose that, did you? 
And, and I'd be like, no, I trimmed it. It's not gone. It's trimmed. Uh, but like even uh, you guys got to see the opening title sequence that, that yeah. the, the original opening title sequence was a good, I want to say minute and minute and 14 and, and more than minute 14, something like that. And, uh, it, you know, it, I really liked that we shot Dave, you were a part of that, that intro title sequence, you know, uh, we shot a lot of good footage for that. And, uh, you know, that alone had to be trimmed down to now, I think it's like 40, 35 seconds. And I know that doesn't sound like a lot. That's trimming 30 something seconds. But those 30 something seconds took a day and a half, if not two weeks to build. <laughs> and and so now it's just literally just boom. All right. Now that's gone. And let me shorten this. But I also got to rearrange the music and the everything in the edit and now the graphics have changed and now the timing of everything has changed and so just doing little trims like that is a huge impact it's not just a simple well just take that out you know it's it's, it's a rearrangement of entire work that has yeah. to be redone yeah I, I don't think when people go to a movie or listen to a record or whatever they they don't fully understand that behind the scenes if a if a record producer or a film producer or whatever tells you to cut 20 seconds. It's painful, man. I mean, it is painful. 20 seconds sounds like a blip and you know, okay. It's a well, rewrite. It's, it's a, a re major, it's a rewrite. It's a, if, yeah. if your actor, let's say you're making a movie and you guys know this, if, if, if you rewrite the script where your, your character says this instead of that, well, that affects that ripple effect with everybody else's reaction in the film or, or even what they're going to say in reaction to the rewrite of your character, of the shot, the scene. It fucks up the whole fucking thing. Yeah. That, that even changes whatever the soundbite, the, the backdrop music is. The reactions of, oh, you're not going to be sad. You're going to be mad, you know, and that changes the whole backdrop. It's it's yeah. a whole rework. There was a couple yeah. times where I had to like, it was, you know, what I call their edit overhauls. And mm. it's just like, well, I got to trim a minute and 30 from here. How am I going to do that? And, you know, it's just a matter of watching it and watching it and, and using my my editing skill set to what's going to be best to move this along and in the pacing of the film mm -hmm. just so that we can make it you know digestible in under two hours but still make it fulfilling you know uh and, and you know the the challenge was i mean you know people ask me all the time well what's the hardest thing about making this film and it's it's by far the the editing the, the not the actual edit process but cutting it down to a manageable two hours because there's 33 years of history that's impossible to fit into just just two hours or less. You know, it's I could have easily I could have made a, a film just about Jason just off his interview alone. You know, that that happened multiple times where we right, John, that where we would interview somebody and we were like, holy shit, we can make a whole film of just about them. Yep. And that's that's what we would say. You know, we, we consider different options and we, we'd go back and forth to try as much to keep the longer versions. But I think the hardest part for me was seeing four versions till we finally got to the final cut. And I wish I could be like you guys and, and, and the rest of our audience and see it for the first time 
as it is now. But, you know, I committed to it every time that we saw a different cut. Now, and, you know, you, you get used to it. Like, okay, we lost that, but now we have this. And then that would become a different version that became a different version. I love the final cut. The final cut is amazing. But I can't go back and just see that for the first time. You know what I mean? Right. So oh, yeah. sometimes, sometimes I feel like you guys are all lucky because you're going to see it for the first time and and the way it is. And there's no taking away from that anymore. Yeah. 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 So give us a sense of where are we on the timeline with this? You, as my understanding is you've submitted it to South by Southwest now that you got it trimmed down and, and kind of in the can, so to speak. Uh, for Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, where what is the status of this film? And uh, what has been, if any, the initial feedback you've heard from the powers that be that are going to determine whether or not we see this on a screen during South by Southwest. We are in the holding pattern with South by and just literally just waiting. I am waiting any, every day, checking my email every single day, you know, cause South by at least lets you know, you know, Hey, you made it or sorry, you didn't, you didn't get in, but, uh, but at least they will not just like leave you in the lurch. So I'm anxiously, all of us are anxiously waiting on pins and needles every single day to get that email. Uh, because in our minds, it's, it has to, this, there is no situation or there is no world where this does not get into South by, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of live on that notion that it will get in. Uh, it's just a matter of when are we going to find out? Uh, right. So, so right now we are actually in the, minutia legal process of all of the finalizing of the film we're doing all of our music supervising getting is getting done to license motorhead and pantera and uh, dangerous toys we got to get all of that stuff and legal and cleared uh so that's actually happening right now um and then the other process is we are uh getting the film mastered and uh we have to get it color corrected uh, all the audios mixed correctly and everything. And our, so our post-production house is going to be working on that. Um, so that's as far as the, so the final actual workings of the actual final film, um, because they might, you know, somebody might come back and say, you know, well, we don't really want that Pearl Jam track in there. And so I, if, if that's the case, I got to replace it with another music bed or whatever. Um, so right now, our music supervisor is working with all the record labels to get all the music cleared. Um, and it's and it's pretty crazy because this past week, uh, the record label, like Pearl Jam's management, Stone Temple Pilots management, they were all emailing, asking us, well, how are you talking about this band? Like, how is it being? So I had to literally send them a clip from the film so yeah. that they could visually see it so they could approve it, you know? And, and it's just mind boggling to me to say, you know, to, to acknowledge that, that like, oh man, okay. Oh, Pantera's management wants to see this. Okay. How is their segment going to be used? You know? So that's where we are in the film right now. And we are in the final stages of trying to get some, uh, some money raised for the film. Uh, for our finishing funds, we are actively doing an eBay auction, auctioning off a bunch of our executive producer, Ray Segern's uh, stuff from his radio year. So we're auctioning off like vinyl and CDs and shirts and stuff. And uh, and then we also have a fundraiser 
uh, coming up in January, on Saturday, January 20th at Mohawk, we are bringing back the Riddling Kids for a reunion show. And cool. a majority of that, of the proceeds from that show will go directly to the film to help us pay for the mastering, the licensing, all that stuff. So, um, so that when South by says you're in, we can literally just pay our tab and go to South by with the hard drive and say, here's our movie. Yeah. So you're, you're basically like an expecting father right now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All the nerves. Just, just to kind of the harsh reality of it is you, <clears throat> let's look at it on what seems to be smaller terms, but just because you submit your band and pay the fees to submit your band to South by Southwest to just play a 30 minute slot on a Monday at noon in a pizza parlor. <laughs> We're because, all laughing because, because the live music capital of the world doesn't have enough venues. <laughs> I'm starting down another path. I apologize. <laughs> doesn't mean that you're going to get accepted. And they keep right. the money. Yeah. Thousands of bands paying X amount of dollars to get their demo, their record, their, you know, their stuff looked at by someone who's an intern who may or may not know shit about rock and roll or whatever kind of music you play is going to say, nah, listen to 30 seconds. Nah. And there went your, your hard earned cash. It, you can't all you can't put it all in one basket. How are you feeling? You know, how are you? You're you're feeling good about it, is what I'm getting. What me and Dave I, are getting. I will say that I have the the film lives in a in an unlisted private link that got sent to South by, uh-huh. and I ha- I get to see the view count on that. And the okay. music, the film, the entire film has only been viewed by our music supervisor and our post production house. Uh, aside from our core team, uh, I have seen the view count go up substantially on that private link. That's so, that's a good feeling. Yeah, so yeah. I have a feeling that South by Team has been watching it, rewatching it, and hence considering. And uh, so I, I'm feeling confident for sure. Okay, good. I just feel like God, Razor's Edge, man. Yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. Because this has but, been four years of your fucking life. Oh yeah, right. and your yeah. your kids and your wives are going to be like, "What? Who's this guy? <laughs> Who's this guy living in the house now?" Yeah, but <laughs> four years. I don't know who you are, and they didn't accept your film. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Well, here's the thing. I, I you know, I don't want to jinx the project. No, by of course Greg, not. But, of course not. But I mean, my God, man, if there was ever a no brainer, I mean, it's a documentary about one of the most celebrated music venues in Austin, Texas. South by Southwest is an Austin, Texas institution. All the people involved in the making of this movie, the bands, the crew, uh, the history that it tells is all part of what makes Austin the Austin music capital of the world. And on top of that, the cherry on top of that is it's really well done. So this to me is, I mean, again, I don't want to jinx it, but I, I can understand your anxiety waiting for that email. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and also like hell, even like the, the success story of dangerous toys 
Yeah. In a South by Southwest discovery Cinderella story, it, it kind of like it piggybacks on itself. You know what exactly. I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, That's a great yeah, you're, point. You're telling, you're telling many stories within one story. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah, movie, the, the film is not documenting South by Southwest Cinderella stories. No. By any on Ooh. any coin, nothing, nothing like that. Ooh. But you're not wrong that you know because bands from all over the world come through. You know, filmmakers from all over the world submit and probably get turned down. Oh yeah, oh yeah. There's so, there's from what I understand, hundreds of yep, hundreds of films get submitted, and you know they sure they make a pretty penny off of that. But right. Um, you know, and, and 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 Dave, you know, we've heard John and I have heard that multiple times that, you know, it would be, it would be dumb of South by to pass this up. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully, I mean, it it's just uh, it it tells a a piece of Austin music history very well. And as to your point, Boudreaux, I hadn't even thought of that, but uh, the success story of Dangerous Toys just conveniently rolls into that. That's a that's a pat on their back. You know, this just happens to be part of this film. Uh, that wasn't the intention. You didn't go out looking for that. Uh, but as part of telling that story, you can't tell that story without mentioning that episode. And that episode is a major, major part of South by Southwest history, Austin history, the backroom history. That's a, I just named three entities right there off the top of my head that are impacted by that story alone. The dangerous toy story. So, well, I, I feel your pain and your anxiety. And, uh, but I, I, I had, if I was a betting man, I'd say this is a no brainer. Well, South by is a giant monster. They've become this huge, it's a trade show now. And I completely understand the progress of what they're trying to do. It, it has to, it's a giant Godzilla. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a giant Godzilla within the time frame of the story of the film. Right. Uh, uh, where, where it pertains to, uh, you know, where we talk about South by Southwest and dangerous toys. But because of that, it's like it it shows a, a really good light on the fact that Austin has always been a hotbed, whether whether that's the right word or not. But I always say when I moved to Austin in 80, you know, there was obviously something in the water as far as like uh, it being this sort of uh, g growing, you know, you know, blob sort of like a hydra of some kind, it, uh, uh, literally of art and music and uh, kind of the kind of I think the hippies came here and were were living at Barton Springs and showering and <laughs> I think it got into the Austin water supply <laughs> and there was something, I mean, I don't know. I didn't get here till 80, but something was going on here. And, uh, you know, I, my life was barely started until I got here. So it has a lot to do with so the story is the story. Um, I think I say in the film, I'm not giving anything away. It's not the, the building. It's the people. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that those people are here to tell the story of this building, 
right? Which is just the roof over the head to keep the rain off of our nasty ass. So, uh, yeah, man, we didn't know what South by Southwest was. And I make that apparent in the film. But the fact that that Austin was this hip town uh, that was not a heavy metal town at all, not a hard rock town at all, uh, had a place for someone who, well, what the fuck is this all about? And show, showed any interest at all is finally being, uh, you know, the, 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 you take the lid off. Oh, that smells good. You know, I feel like that's a good thing about the film. And so when they watch that and they realize um, that I feel like it would it would be a really good idea for them to go, ah, let's give these kids a chance, you know, because that's kind of originally what the festival was about. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's another hat. That's another feather. That's another great thing about Austin, uh, about its its uh, its people and I say this in jest a little bit. More people are going to move to Austin after they see this film. <laughs> yeah, we Do we blame, need that to happen? Anyway. We could blame Boudreaux and John for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you guys. So one of the things I took away from, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of in a broad sense am pretty well versed in the history of the back room. But one of the things I wasn't so well versed in was its humble beginnings. And one of the things I really enjoyed about what I saw on a, on a preview clip was how you captured and laid the foundation for what became the, the back room as it's known in a broader sense. But when you talk to uh, Dan and Dave and, um, I, they were great, by the way. And and I love there's a graphic in the in the film where you show the two buildings next to each other. And then they they knocked down some walls and paved over the uh, courtyard or whatever yeah. and turned it into one big building, which is the back room that we all came to know and love. But going back before that and, and then you even talk about the fact that the back room actually started where uh, today is the Thundercloud subs. And those of us that live in Austin pass by that. To that be clear, and this is just me for for concept, Dan and Dave are the country act? Yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. making sure because, you know, we're pretending no one has seen the trailer, right? So the teaser. So Right, right. So, yeah, I, I was going to lend some context to that. But so the, so the point is that, that, that Dan and Dave uh, were sort of this country western duo. They had a backing band, but they were sort of the 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 leaders of the band, I guess. And um, <laughs> there's a there's a quote from one of the guys where he says something about, you know, the back room became known for being this loud and rowdy place mm -hmm. for debauchery and hell raising. And we're kind of proud to have laid the groundwork for that. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are aware of that. So right. tell us a little bit about your interview segment with Dan and Dave. And then Great after, question. That, after that, tell me something. So that's what I, that's something I learned about the back room. So after you tell me about interviewing Dan and Dave, then tell me something each of you learned about the venue that you didn't know until you started digging into this film. Man, Dan and Dave, that was that was the 
kind of a brainchild spark idea that came from Dave Pruitt because he had found that footage. So this is how it worked. He found that footage and he said, you know, you might want to go ask these guys and see if they're still around. And so that footage led, uh, led me to Artie Passes, who, uh, who played with them. And uh, he's like, yeah, I can get those guys for you for an interview. And from what I understand, uh, you know, what I was told by their family members, because they wanted, you know, they contacted me and they were like, OK, so what are you doing? You're doing a film about that. How are you going to how are you going to use our grandfathers in this movie and how are you going to use our parents in this movie? And so I told them I explained and, and they were excited and, and, and just over the moon, just helpful and happy to be a part of this. Um, they were really awesome an awesome couple of of guys that they came in and they gave us like i want to say a good hour and a half interview of just stories about ronnie rourke about how they commanded and they were kind of considered at least according to them they were kind of like the real kind of like uh they had a residency there for 10 years 12 years something like that when the back room was first starting and so they played every friday night every friday and almost every friday and saturday night and so they had a long history with the place and uh they were just really funny guys they were known as uh being real sarcastic and and messing with the crowd and they were they were really excited to be a part of this film um you know one one person another person we interviewed was van wilkes and he ended up not being in the final cut as well but van wilkes also was a part of that history uh, of the backroom itself and uh so i kind of laid it out that dan and dave was kind of like the one of the first founding not founding but like one of the first duo acts that kind of laid the groundwork of this club and how it wasn't really kind of just another standard country hole in the wall kind of place. It was something that they were kind of turning the building into something of their own and using the venue for themselves and playing around with the crowd. And, and so I thought that was a cute sentiment when Dan had said, you know, I kind of, you know, this place was known for raising hell. I kind of feel like we were a part of that. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, it's, it really, you know, it really was kind of like a, 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 a really, fun thing to start the film off as far as the history standpoint kind of following then, following a bloodline sounds yeah, like yeah and, and and then so yes with the son and so uh the only downside of that with the dan and dave story was that when we were going to premiere the trailer the day that we premiered the trailer hours before that we premiered the trailer uh, Dan passed away. Oh, uh, his his oh. daughter texted me and his, no, his son texted me and said that his, that his dad had text, uh, passed away during the day. Um, and he was really excited about the film. He was telling everybody that he's in this movie. Uh, and, and it was just kind of like a, like, oh, man, that was a bummer. And, uh, but since then, uh, you know, his son, um, you know, they, he's reached out to me along with Nico and, and they, we, we hang out though. I hang out with them and, and, uh, you know, they, they really love that we got to put his father in this film and, and it was, and it was great overall. So I, I'm glad that we, they, they were able to still exist in this film, you know, for, for their family and for people to know about that, this building and, and, and them as part of this history. Yeah. Um, but to answer your second question, 
uh, at least for me, I never knew that the back room, the original back room was down there by where the Riverside liquor and then the, the you know, the out, front. Was. out front. Yeah. Yeah. Down yeah, the hill. That was something I, I till, till we started this film, I had no idea about that. Do you guys you know? remember, uh, sorry, this is not off topic. It's a, it's location. Do you guys remember, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit older, but when I got here in 80, there was a, uh, a venue called mother earth. Mm-hmm. You heard about that place? Yeah. Oh yeah. And it was on the same block. Yeah. There's people that talked about that. And, okay. and, and, and we decided, we decided to trim that part of, because a lot of people sure. brought that up, especially Van Wilkes, you know? Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, a lot of people, you know, they were saying, well, you know, mother earth, brother. And then, so Mark again, Geary oh, drummer, I'm sorry to interrupt Mark Geary of dangerous toys, just to give him a little bit of glitter. Uh, he played drums in a band called the Jacks and they played mother earth like every weekend. Mm-hmm. And so we, we had to just, as far as the film component, we had to take part of the, that out just because we had to like drive it along and didn't want to confuse too many people of, sure. okay, there's, you know, the back room and then there was the copper dollar and then wait, there was mother earth. And then, so it, we just decided to kind of trim that and, and kind of make it a little bit more efficient. As far yeah. as pacing goes. Well, you don't want to confuse with your 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 rhetoric and your your arrow, your your compass. Mm. Um, but the history of that 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 strip mall, you could say, like, yeah, yeah, history. Yeah. Uh, and I I mentioned it yesterday on my email to you guys. It's hallowed ground. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm ta- I'm talking about Austin, Texas music history. It's hallowed ground, just as much as the drag is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, down on the, those old venues used to be on down on campus. The original Antones was down mm-hmm. there when I when I got here. Uh, all this shit uh, needs to be told, but it's kind of a different story that may or may have, may already have been told in another documentary that was uh, focused on an artist or something. But mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. John, what'd yeah. you learn? What'd you learn about the film when you started digging in? Actually, that was we had started the film when we when we had taken notes, we had started it already at the top of the hill and we backtracked because that was one of the biggest eye opening things that we found out was that it started down at the bottom and then we started doing some research. But I do want to say that that one of the coolest things with Dan and Dave, that they they brought in a vinyl. Oh, yeah. Of a a live recording. And it said Dan and Dave live at the back room. And what they, there was a, I think it was called Phantom Recording. There was a, a record, a guy that would record albums and drive up in a van and connect straight to the soundboard. Yeah. And they brought the vinyl with them and they had it there. And I was just, I was so surprised with, with everything. Wow. That entire interview was one of my favorite. Yeah. Wow. You, you, wow. you might be able to connect some of the dots here. The, the, there used to be um, a band that I think Van Wilkes was actually in that was kind of a prog rock band mm-hmm. with a guy, and I, I feel terrible that I can't remember the guy's name, but he actually engineered uh, Ted Nugent Double Live Gonzo, some of the, the recordings of Ted Nugent Double Live Gonzo album. And I, fuck, anyway, he was in, I want to say he was in this band, this prog rock band, this would have been in the 70s. Mm-hmm. with uh with van and uh he's a recording engineer as well as a musician as well and he's passed away since 
I believe so. And uh, he may have had that recording rig in a truck. He may be involved somewhat. If you could see if there's any credits on that vinyl, they probably didn't give you the vinyl, did they? No, but I took pictures. Okay, so I can go back and look yeah, at them. See what kind of credits are on there, and let's try to connect some dots. Th this is the nerd in me, and it's also the fucking reason <laughs> me and Dave have a podcast. Yeah, that, yeah. Those little details are, we want to, like, nerd out on that. So Them talking about the vinyl was in the film, and but ultimately I had to trim it out. And their segment was a little bit, actually a little bit longer uh you know i had a lot more of a uh, footage of them kind of chuckling with the audience and 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 oh yeah you know throwing shots at the audience and and there was their segment was originally a little bit longer and you could have made a film just about those guys those oh yeah guys. yeah oh yeah easily yeah yeah, easily. yeah. i, I uh, love that I love the fact that you included those guys because I think a lot of people from a distance, when they think of the back room, they think of the hard rock, heavy metal heyday, and then they think of the next wave with grunge. And then uh, some of the younger kids remember it when, you know, a lot of the pop punk bands came up. But I think it's uh, important, and you know this as filmmakers, uh, that you went all the way back to sort of the roots. And and much to uh, Dan and Dave's point, I've, I don't know, I can't remember which guy is which, but the guy that made the point that they basically planted the seeds for the rebellion that that place became known for. Yeah. And so when, for that, we all owe them a debt of gratitude. When I, when I saw the first, tease, the, tra the first teaser for it, which has been a while ago now, and I believe that those guys popped up, I was like, who are these two grandpas in here? Yeah. You know, I thought well, this they, was like a heavy metal film, or you know, and and it's not. It really is. It it's a historical document. Uh, Those two that, grandpas opened the door for dangerous that, toys. That's, that's right. Who they that's are. Right. <laughs> they were they were Jim. They were ripping off Jim Dandy before I was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. So I will ass. say that I will say that uh, I did not know that in in doing the research for the film, I didn't know that Raven was the first metal act that was brought in yeah, and Megadeth was I, the second. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Now that Megadeth, just to show my wares here, show and tell, I was at those, that Megadeth Exciter gig. Mm. That was when the stage was in the corner so mm -hmm. before they had done the rebuild and moved the stage proper to where it had a flat wall. Uh, I saw I saw plenty of bands in there on that corner stage. I saw Nazareth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I saw the Ramones. Yeah, I saw the Ramones too. Yeah, that Ramones did two nights, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, the um, that makes you think the people who, well, are a part of the the club's history, don't recall. I mean, it's the corner stages before you guys' time, even. Mm -hmm. But the point. Um, being is that like Raven being the first metal band, it seems like someone would have remembered that. And I do not remember <laughs> that because Raven on a headline tour with some punks called Metallica opening the tour played at fourth and Brazos at mm. a club called the nightlife, which is the a former was a former punk club called club foot. As you mm -hmm. guys have historic, you guys, probably have your thumb on the pulse of history, historical venues around here. I'm sure you've heard of both of those things. 
So in, to my knowledge, in 83, that would have been the, the first Raven show in Austin. Right. The, the Raven show at the back room, though, was, was dated 85. Okay. So, and, and, and apparently Wayne Nagel was responsible for wow. bringing that show to town or to bring okay. it to the, uh, to the back room. Uh, I, that I was another thing. I missed that. that. I'm just, you know what it is? I'm just confessing to you guys that I'm mad at myself because that I didn't know that <laughs> you guys are schooling me. So, well, that's one of the things that was another takeaway, uh, for me, um, because, you know, I didn't quite know what was the, 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 the pivotal moment where, the back rooms suddenly started to become shift gears and turn into a metal club, if you will. Mm. And your movie points out the fact that uh, I think Wayne Nagel was the talent buyer at the time, and he brought Raven to the back room in 1985. And that was the start of it all turning into more of a hard rock, heavy metal kind of uh, mecca. Yeah, I think at that point when Wayne... Brought, from what I understand, that that Raven show was so well received that Ronnie Rourke went to Wayne and said, "So what's this hair metal thing that's happening? Why, uh, you know, what, what's going hmm. on with this?" And like, so at that point, that's when he said, "Maybe you should start booking more of this hair metal, whatever's happening." And and then after that, it was Megadeth, and after that, it just was history since. So it, it it's it's kind of funny that. It just kind of took a just one, two shows to like. Yeah, it took a I'm, turn for the harder, faster. And, and that became because of that, that I think I th I think I think it's fair to say uh, and, and I might be wrong and feel free to correct me. You guys did a lot of homework on this subject, obviously. But I feel like when you say the back room to a to a to a wider audience, um, it's mostly remembered and some of this might be because of dangerous toys. I think when you say the back room, people immediately go to hard rock, heavy metal, hair metal. They don't remember the Dan and Dave uh, 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 era, which, which is why I'm so glad that you put them in the film because they laid the groundwork. And they, you know, some of the grunge stuff, yes, uh, uh, because some key players came through at early points in their career and played some memorable shows. But I think by and large, if you say the back room, people remember it for Dangerous Toys, Pariah, L.A. Guns, Faster Pussycat, you know, you know, kicks, bands like that that came through there. Um, yeah, I mean, I saw Armored Saint and and Saxon and M Exciter and Megadeth there. So you could say it was thrash hard rock bands who were on major labels, but were st still kind of up and coming, you know, they were on their first records, so right. to speak, their first right. real tours. And they came through the back room and played that corner stage, which is pretty mind blowing. I, I remember a story standing in the parking lot, uh, Rex Brown going Ooh. by Rex rocker at the time. I'm hanging out with John Bush and it would have been right around 85. Uh, and, uh, and Rex comes up and, and meets John introduces himself and hands him. Here's our first, you know, it's Pantera first pan. Here's our first record. Here's our second record. Here's our third record. And it was pre transition between singers for Pantera. But I remember that those guys are, are close friends now. 
And I, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not patting myself on the back, but I was there when those two kind of like met eyes, right? It was cool. pretty yeah. interesting right there at the back room. So the back room was good for something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it makes a great movie. Yeah. Who, who did you, who was on your wish list of people to include in the movie as interviewees, uh, that you couldn't quite get? Oh, mm. I think I, good question. I, like I will say, and I know, and then John can back me up on this and he can explain further, but Phil was going to be my grail interview, Phil Anselmo. Uh, we had kind of coordinated to get that interview. We knew he knew about us. We knew he knew about the film. Yeah. Um, but again, this was just post COVID really readily right after COVID. So a lot of the stuff and schedules and I guess also John D. Wright, a hurricane. Hurricane. So was, like, uh, so we had a we had scheduled a day that we were gonna go to Corpus and that's before I think they were touring. He was touring with the illegals, I think, and they were doing Pantera covers. I remember right. before the before the big tour. And uh so we had scheduled a day where I knew people that worked in Corpus at the at the club they were gonna play at. We were gonna go out there and we were gonna try and just talk to Phil. We didn't care. We interviewed him formally. We just wanted to talk to Phil and ask him some questions that we could use, even if it wasn't on camera. And so we were going to go down there and that got taken away from by a hurricane. What was the first one, Boudreaux? The, we were going to go to New Orleans and then what happened? No, the New Orleans. No, 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 no. The New Orleans, New Orleans was, was, a hurricane? was the hurricane. We were going to go to his house. What happened in Corpus? I that, thought was, that, was, that was a COVID thing. I think uh, it was. they shut down the show. They shut down the show and then another time we had another opportunity in san antonio to go interview him and then another and that COVID shut that one down too so uh it just it was turned into one of these like i guess you know it's just not going to line up uh but we did the pantera scenes without him and so it still worked because there's we have 15 different people talking about pantera and the secret show and all that stuff and the footage is speaks for itself at that point. Plus it's also sprinkled with reenactment footage as well. So I was it, at that show. Did you guys, show? Were you yeah. guys there? I was not. I, I drove up. I, I don't know if it was the secret show. I was living in San Antonio and I remember a, a friend of mine was raving about Pantera, Pantera, Pantera. He, you know, he thought they were the greatest and he's like, you need to see Pantera. And then he said, Hey, they're playing at the back room in Austin. We need to go. I need to take you. You need to see this band. So we drove up from San Antonio and I remember, uh, we got there and the line was out the door and around the building and it was freezing cold and we're standing in line. And then somebody from the club makes an announcement that the gig is canceled because they blew up the sound system at Soundcheck or something like that. It was one of these things where we made the trip to see Pantera and the show didn't happen. But that's not that true. Was, that, so, that, so that was a different show. That wasn't the secret show. Right. Oh, right. That okay. did happen. But that indeed yeah. did happen. Oh, okay. And, I'm but, talking about uh, the secret show. No, this no, was yeah. the secret show. This was okay. billed as Pantera. That's why oh, my right. partner was aware yeah. of it, and that's why we made the road at, trip. At that show, yeah, Dime, Dime, he struck, he struck, he was playing his guitar, and I'm literally on the first note, he blew the entire PA. 
and yeah. so the entire show got canceled. <laughs> and uh, so that was actually in the film, and that was a tidbit that I had to cut out last minute. Uh, That's but, a good story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then, but the secret show was when they were billed as cowboys from hell. Yeah, I ran but, into Vinny in the inside, like you know, after late afternoon kind of thing, and he took me back out into the alley and down the alley into the old dressing rooms back there. Mm-hmm. To uh, to like just basically and you know say hi how you doing because this was right after this would have been eighty six ish late eighty six maybe I don't ask uh, for specifics on dates but this was around the time that that uh, that well obviously it was after it was a year after. So nah, maybe, maybe 87, early 87, but you know, I had Vinny and his dad had called me like around the time that Rex met John Bush and I was there kind of going, Hey dude, what's up? Cool. Just being a fly on the wall, probably bothering John Bush. Cause I love John Bush. <laughs> and, uh, and we, we were friend. already, we were already buddies, but I, I, I'm probably a, hanging on his shirt, you know? And, you're wearing uh, his shirt. Yeah, I love <laughs> I love John Bush. You're wearing so, his hoodie right now. I'm wearing yeah, wait, I better cover that up. So um <laughs> anyway, what I'm getting at is is they had I had been courted by the band to audition, just Ooh. audition for Pantera in the interim between so this would have been a year, two year, year and a half later. So probably sometime in eighty seven, I would imagine. And they were promoting Cowboys from Hell, obviously. But I, Vinny took me back to meet Daryl, and uh, and Philip was in there, and that was the first time that I actually, sh- you know, shook hands with those gentlemen. Uh, and the show was scary, so you could kind of see what was about to happen to the band. Yeah, yeah Chris. So. Chris Gates gave a great in part of his interview when he talked about it. He said, and and this is in the film. He says. It was, there was people moshing on top of people, on top of people, on top of people. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then Les Warren, who used to work for the Forge or he used to do the Forge, you know, he said that was the show that felt dangerous. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, that's in the film. And so it was a, it was a quite a landmark moment for the club with that, with that secret show. Uh, but still it, it's definitely to have footage of that is amazing to have reenactments of that is really cool. And to have all these people talking about Pantera as a whole and how big their influence was for the, for the club itself as yeah. a big magnet for metal yeah. and groove metal is, is, is I'm really proud of that scene, all that whole entire section that we have of, of Pantera in the film. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome. Do you feel like that came across when, when the patrons are talking about, how how a show like that secret Pantera show, like they they got scared, like mm-hmm. oh, do you feel like you, you that comes across in the film when they talk about oh my god, those were those moments when you're at a show like this barricade's gonna go any second and someone's mm-hmm. gonna die. Do you feel yeah. like you captured that in the film? Yeah, I think it's there's definitely a sense of that emotion of. 
holy shit, what's this is crazy. Like, uh, you know, I think I've got Dave Pruitt in there saying it's 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 there's more people than it can hold. And and yeah. you see the footage of from the front of from like the band's perspective of just the 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 sea of people and how deep it was. And then they're all climbing on top of each other and climbing the poles in the, in the crowd. And it's just, it, it's crazy. And I think that there's definitely a feeling of that for in the film to at least give people a sense of, wow. As that, best you can. Yeah. Fun. Without yeah. being there. But I think the, the interviewer interviewees, the, the folks that you interviewed talking about that, you know, they're, they're doing this while they're telling the story, like, no, yeah. this is bad, right? That kind of a vibe <laughs> when, you, when you're at a show, fuck, yeah, this is going to be awesome. And then like 30 minutes in, you're like, maybe yeah. I ought to leave. Yeah. <laughs> Should I call the ambulance and just have them wait out front? Because there were moments like that at the, at the club. I saw when we that. Shot, when we oh. shot the, the Pantera reenactments at the Lost Well, one of our guys and it was unscripted, actually stage dove and crowd surfed while we we're shooting footage. And granted, the band's not really playing on stage. It was just the energy that from the all the extras that were in the crowd. And he just, I'm not sure if that little clip is in the movie, but we had a stage diving incident just because of the energy that we had put I together guess, doing the reenactments. I, 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 you know what, At the mo in the moment, shit happens while you're on set. You know, ideas come to you. And I just, everybody was just vibing with these guys playing, you know, playing the part of Pantera and the crowd was in it and the music's blasting out of this PA and, I, and we've got three cameras rolling. So I just yelled at this kid that was in the crowd and I had a, and I had a megaphone at the time. And so I yelled at him and I said, get up on the stage and stage dive and crowd surf right now. Okay. And he ran up there. And he crowded, and actually, to, to your point, John Drew, it is in the film. There's a short little clip, tiny little two, three second clip of it. And he just, and he loved it. He had never done that before. And it, it was just, it was amazing. And the cameras captured it. And just the vibe, the vibe of shooting these reenactments was really, really helpful. And, and just, it, it, it works. And I think that transcends through the film and, in, and to the viewers. Yeah. A related side note, I saw that Pantera tour in San Antonio. And prior to that, I had seen Slayer in a club. And Slayer uh, was had the crown. They held the crown for being the most insane show I'd ever seen. And then I saw that Pantera. And Pantera took that crown and mm -hmm. owned it until about two weeks ago when I saw Fugitive here in Austin. Mm -hmm. The band to own that crown for that number of years. I mean, it was everything you just said. It was so insane. It felt scary. You felt like you were going to die because the, the, the band was going ape shit. The crowd was going ballistic. It was just this boiling sea of humanity and it felt scary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I, I know what you mean. I wanted to ask you, cause everybody knows the back room is legendary for better or worse because of the pole. So when you're doing the the interviews, who had the best poll story? Now, let me set the stage for a second. So for people that aren't familiar, the back room, when the stage was moved from the corner more towards the middle of the room, there was this pole that was right in the line of view, and it would be in the middle of where the mosh pit would be if there was a mosh pit, or it's basically in the middle of the audience. 
And it was known, the, the club was known for this damn pole. Everybody cursed it and kind of by default sort of loved it because it was sort of the 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 trademark of the club. So do you mean the pole which is in on the stage or the pole in the middle of the room, which would be the where the mosh pit fits? The 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 pole that everybody talks about. I guess the performers talk about it. Performers talk about the pole that's on the stage. Yeah. Okay. And then the people in the audience talk about the pole that's in the middle of the room that they try they tried to wrap padding around it. They tried to write they 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 slimed it up with Vaseline Vaseline. so you would you would slide off of it and wouldn't climb it. Uh, I so, think that so, it was so you wouldn't climb it. They put Vaseline, uh, you know, you got to a certain point. It was like, ah, ah, yeah. which is a great fucking idea. So performers or audience members in the course of doing this movie, who had the best story about either one of the polls? Because the club was known for the poll. That there was a scene. There was a whole sequence about the stage moving. And uh, ultimately, that whole sequence ended up getting cut. What did not, and that led into the poll sequence. So we actually have a whole sequence of just people talking about the poll, and it actually starts off with McMaster uh, because it, I just have a couple of clips of people saying, and I quote: "This is in the film. Oh, the fucking poll, the fucking poll. Oh my god, the fucking poll, the fucking poll." And then the place for the fucking poll, the place for the fucking poll. Yeah, yeah. And then so a lot of those. You know, it, I had a lot of footage of people talking about the poll, especially on the, on the stage. But I think, uh, and a couple of people did mention the ones in the crowd, but I think my favorite story, and John G, I don't know how you feel about this one, is the Derek Halfman I was going to tell that one. Yeah, yeah, it's the Dio, the Dio story about the poll, um, which I don't think, and, and that was a something that we had to trim from the film. So I guess you can share it if you want. Yeah, so Derek said, that uh, Ronnie had played at the on the side stage, the one that we don't know, and there was a, a form of a pole there, also on stage. It wasn't right dead center, but it was kind of to the side of where he would stand. And he hated the place. He hated that there was a pole in his way where he's used to standing. And he made it known after that show that they were not to come back there if that pole was still there. He even vowed to come cut it down if he ever came in there again. And so they moved the stage where is the pole that we know now too, that's even worse in a worse position, but they never told him when they were coming back, all the, the, whoever was in charge of that tour told him that they moved the stage and in his head, that meant the pole's gone. Mm, And all they told him was they moved the stage and he hadn't gone out there. He was in the, in the green room. And when it was their cue, the, the band starts playing. And I guess then Ronnie comes on stage last and starts singing. He hadn't been on the stage. He wasn't there for sound check. They kept this whole thing from him. So when he comes out in his high-pitched voice, instead of singing the song he was going to sing, he just points and wails, pull, and nobody knows what to do. And he just continues with the show, but he was mad. Damn it. <laughs> well, that would have been, I'm, I'm going to, this is a, an educated guess i'm not don't hold me to this but i think that's the armored saint dio tour Mm. that that happened and me and dave were both there we were at that show uh i don't remember him calling out the poll but i mean that doesn't mean it didn't happen but right yeah 
that was a memory. We, we probably it been during soundcheck. We but, probably but, missed Dio's first song. Yeah, you and me, because we, we were, were hanging out with Brian Slagle or something. We were on the Armored Saint bus and yeah. then ran in to check out Dio. I couldn't believe Dio was playing at the back room, and we were all super excited about. Well, this. we've been talking about this off and on, if not as of late, but the fact that. It wasn't even COVID. It was just musical uh, industry climate is the reasons we saw our fucking heroes at the back room. We saw Dio in a club. We saw Motorhead and Uh Anthrax and, you know, in a club. And uh, thank God Austin had a a medium-sized club venue that would hold something like that. I mean, I feel like Come and Take It Live is an extension of the medium to large, you know, hold 700, 800, you know, a thousand people with maybe a fire marshal down the street looking at it going, hmm, right? But the point is the same. I feel lucky that whatever was happening in in the industry that a lot of, you know, in the Dio film, you know, Wendy talks about, well, we lost our record deal. And and you could say if there was a film about Lemmy, you know, we lost our record deal. It was not a big deal to some. I mean, I feel like Lemmy took it better probably than Wendy seems to uncover. Like it was a big blow to Ronnie. But we got to see him up close mm-hmm. because yeah. of because of the, the stars aligning in a certain way, good or bad. I think that's also something that it's that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this film was because of the place itself. It didn't matter where you came from or who you were, that it was open to everybody. And you got to see your heroes, you know, up close and personal and through some kind of weird osmosis, you almost were able to be a part of them and a part of their history to see them up close. And I think that's why that's what made this place so special um, was the fact that, yeah, you know, you can meet your friends there. You could have cheap drinks there. You can play some video games and pool, but you could see some of your favorite artists right up close sitting and- at the bar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then plus, see some cool up and coming bands too that are cutting their teeth. Yeah, and doing DIY stuff to to get their name out there, and handing out demos, and handing out flyers and free tickets. You know, I think that's a part of that era that I was trying to capture that a lot of kids don't know or don't realize that now, or college kids, you know, and. And, and I think that's something that I really want to get out there is that look at how hard these bands worked in a non-digital era to get their names out there and yeah. to get uh, to, so, so they could play for 30 minutes, 45 minutes on a weekend. Uh, some of them made it. A lot of them didn't, you know. And so I think that's that, that's one of my other reasonings of like, you know, what I want people, especially a younger generation to take away uh, for music fans, you know? I think that goes back to something Jason said way back in the early part of this conversation where it's not the building, it's the people. And we had, uh, we had Christian Shields on the show recently, and we were talking about 
the back room and it the, its importance isn't just the bands on stage it the importance is the social hub that it created and this sort of cultural hangout where that's where you went to see your tribe whether a national act was playing or not that's just where you went on friday and saturday because all your friends were there and that's sort of the magic of a venue in my opinion and and that might be part of the reason that the back room lasted for 33 years or whatever it was it wasn't just because dangerous toys was playing there and motorhead was playing there it was because that's where you went on friday and saturday night anyway because your people were there mm -hmm. i'm glad you or, brought up or motorhead. tuesday and wednesday yeah, well, yeah. What day was ten cent drinks or ninety nine yeah. pitchers? I was there for all of that. Yeah, <laughs> it was dangerous. I don't know if it was a place that you went very often if you weren't a drinker. <laughs> I don't know what you're saying about me. But... No, I'm not. I'm talking about you know people who either were trying to not drink. The back room made it really hard for you. If you were trying to not drink, the back room wasn't helping you at all. Well, yeah, that, and that was a different time, too. You could get away with 10-cent sure. drinks and 99-cent pitchers. You couldn't do that today. No. I'm glad you brought up Motorhead because one of my fondest memories of the back room is uh, I spent my 35th birthday at the back room, and it was it was a Saturday night, which is a bonus. It was my birthday, which is a bonus. Motorhead was playing, which is the biggest bonus. And my friend Houston Richardson, who's a part of this film, uh, worked at the back room at the time. So he got me into the show and I got uh, an after show pass that Lemmy had autographed. And he, he made it out to um, Houston told him my name was Metal Dave. And so he wrote to Metal Dave. And then in parentheses next to metal, he said mental with a question mark because that's British slang for mental is British slang for crazy. And, uh, and I think that actually made it into the movie that, that, that passed, but man, you talk about a memorable night. It's my, my birthday. It's Saturday night. Motorhead is playing. I'm hanging out with motorhead. It was, you talk about the planets aligning. That well, that was, was a sleepover for you, <laughs> but there was no sleep. <laughs> right. Well, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah it was an all night overnight over mom. I won't be home. <laughs> but at that point, I was old. Enough. It was my 35th birthday. I hope I'm not still living at home. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so, uh, so on that note, what are the most memorable backroom shows for all three of you guys as a spectator? Forget the film, uh, but as a guy in the crowd, what show do you remember the most from the backroom? I... One of my favorite moments, and I've, I've said this publicly a couple times before, but I, it's still, it's my number one. Uh, I went to a South by show back when the Chronicles had a whole grid. Yeah. You, know? mm -hmm. uh, you remember that? And oh, yeah. You bounce from this place to this place to this place to this place. And it literally like 30 minute blocks, you know, and I, I was doing that and uh, I went to go. I went to go see the dead Kennedys play and the dead Kennedys were, were about to go up. And, and I remember, I forgot who I was there with, but I, I, I distinctly remember I had a t-shirt and on the back, it said, uh, I hate punk rock. <laughs> it said, I hate punk rock. And so I'm there with my beer, you know, I'm talking to so-and-so and I get a tap on the shoulder and I turn around and this guy tells me, 
hey man i love that shirt great shirt and it was east bay ray from the dead kennedys <laughs> and, and so that he gets up and he's and he leaves me and he gets up on stage and he starts jamming with you know, i think brandon cruz was at the time the singer and uh and i was like just in shock and everybody there I was like man dead kennedys just came up to you dude like that i was like wow that <laughs> I don't even remember most of that show because I was still in shock that East Bay Ray had done that. So that was definitely one of my favorite moments of going to the back room was, was that specific show. And so, yeah, it was great. John. Mine, I want to say, I mean, there were, there was always that typo negative air conditioner went out at the back room show, but yep. one of my, one of my favorite is aside from that one, is, it was system of a down and the, only because the opening band I became really good friends with. I met them after the show and we were friends for years. They were called Darwin's waiting room. And it was, they were, they, they got my attention and I, I got, you know, usually I go and I listen to the opener and, and, you know, sometimes they, they're hit or miss, but this time they got my attention and I wanted to go talk to them. And so I, I introduced myself to them after the show and we hung out. And then we exchanged phone numbers and those guys, anytime they would come through, they would always give me a call. And this was back when, before we could text and all that. So um, that was a really fun show. And, and it, I became friends with the, with the band that was an opening act that I never expected to, to even have known before I went in there. Yeah. Yeah. Goes back to that whole community thing that I was just exactly. talking about. Exactly. Yeah. Kevin Fowler called it the church. And I like nice. that term. Nice. Yeah, Jason, you've got to have countless. Well, if if I haven't mentioned them already, I mean, seeing all of the bands that are the threads on uh, on my back, you know, Armored Saint, Megadeth, Motorhead, Anthrax, uh, it goes and goes and and goes. Uh, I think I the first time I saw a band called uh, I I saw a lot of bands and they're much like like the story John just told. Uh, I think I saw the first time I saw a band that I like uh, called Sleepy Time Gorilla Museum. Have you guys yeah. ever heard that band? I've heard the name. Yeah. So crazy. It's name. like Prague, but it's not, you wouldn't, you'd listen to it and not say, oh, how, how progressive, you know, tip your glasses, <laughs> you know, the spectacle falls out, you know. Uh, but they're, they were beyond progressive and then i i saw them again uh i'm pretty sure the first time i saw them was at the back room but i saw them again down at room 710 on red river but uh yeah i saw a lot of bands that were like very interesting and they were you know touring in a van or a school bus that you know they lived in mm -hmm. uh you know they were on a, on a weekday you know whatever but whatever, uh, the back room had, um, you know, those moments, those aha moments where, you know, you, you live there, but every once in a while something would happen and you'd go, holy shit, what is that? You know what I mean? It, yeah. There was, that was happening quite often in there. Uh, and I feel like as a, as a family, as a tribe, uh, you know, who was there all the time when those moments happened in the back room, it was something special. No, yeah. I'm not saying those moments weren't happening all across town and every city in the world, but, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, that was one, that's one, but 
I've already mentioned it a hundred times, all of the bands that I've seen in there and am proud to be able to say that, you know, I was, the singer was spitting in my face. You yeah. know, we, you were literally there watch, seeing, you know, the guy that wrote your favorite riff play it live in front of your head, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's after the sort of the hair metal heyday of the back room, then the next wave came in and we're talking now we're into the grunge era and the Pearl Jams and the Stone Temple Pilots and, and, and the Alice in Chains and, and, and the like are, are making their way across the country. They're playing at the back room. And of course, one of the most uh, notable stories of that era is Eddie Vedder getting his hair stuck in the sprinkler system after he, he climbed up into the rafters or whatever and a chunk of his hair got ripped out and stayed up there for six, seven, eight years or something like that. Whatever happened to his hair? We don't know. You didn't, you didn't get an answer to that? <laughs> no, like nobody gave a definite answer to whatever happened to it. Nobody knows what happened to it. So Somebody suggested that I think one of the management that came in, he started putting his band T-shirts up on the ceiling. Yeah, and that's, was, Bobby, and that's Bobby McNeely. Bobby, Bobby McNeely. And somebody yeah. suggested that when he was doing that, they finally pulled down the hair. But wow. nobody okay. really knows. Okay. Wow. Well, those shirts were uh, on the oh, ceiling and in the back. They oh, that were, was before that? They were yeah. in the back. They, uh, they weren't, they, they were, you know, they were over there by the front door. Like right when you walked in the front door and took a ride into the band side, they were all right there on the right as you walked around and towards the bar. And then they okay. went, so they that did, have, yeah, they did, that wouldn't have they, been in that area. they did exp expand over the, the, you know, the ceiling as you went the closer to the stage you got, but I think they stopped at a certain point. Uh, I ended up getting a, a few of those shirts off of the ceiling. Ooh. I don't know if I still have them and I don't recall which ones they were, but there was some cool shit up there. Ooh. You know yeah, how many awesome. thousands of dollars Bobby could have made by selling those on eBay? Wow. Yeah. That's exactly what Andy Langer said about yep. the hair. That's why I asked about right. the hair. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Nobody, nobody knows. It mysteriously disappeared. So nobody, nobody knows what happened to it. So, uh, but that was a great story. That was a great story to shoot and react. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, speaking we, of the reenactments, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but, but speaking of the, uh, the, the, the reenactments, what were, what would say one of the biggest challenges you faced in in doing a reenactment was there anything where it was difficult to acquire the wardrobe or get the right look for a certain person or capture the energy properly what was my 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 feeling with the reenactments was i i really wanted to create a sense of telling stories for the people that were there in whatever story, in whatever capacity, so that they could go, oh, that's kind of what I remember. Yeah, da, 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 you know, uh, and for the people that weren't there to kind of, oh, that's kind of what it looked like. I tried to be as accurate as possible, but it wasn't a hard set rule that it had to be absolutely finite. Exactly. And it was more of an interpretation, you know, um, I just wanted to give people an idea of what certain things looked like. Now, 
I was trying to be, like I said, try to be as accurate as possible. And and if something fell through the cracks here and there, well, oh, well, you know, it's a fucking movie. You know, uh, it's more along the lines of is what is being told at the moment important? And are the visuals good enough to back that story, that interview up? Um, that's what mattered to me. So is, if somebody's hair or what they're wearing 100% accurate. Well, as long as it's close, that's fine enough with me. It's more along the lines of what is being told at the moment. But certain reenactments certainly did take a lot more energy and planning and time and 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 coordination because you know we we one of the reenactments that I'm really proud of in this in the entire film is the two life crew reenactments. Uh, where two life crew went in there and they kind of caused a mini riot because there was a gun and all that stuff. And, you know, we had a whole club full of extras that I'm, you know, trying to coordinate with the actors on the stage and the actors in the crowd and the people. And, 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 you know, and we had like, we had to get a, a, a vintage 1990s cash register, you know, for to, you know, that was, you don't realize how much time and planning and, and coordination that alone takes, let alone trying to recreate an entire riot, you know? Uh, so I'm really happy with the, that way that sequence played out because we got to, that was my first time ever shooting a riot. <laughs> I mean, recreated a riot, you know, and, and, but it, it, it's, it's, but it's when you see the final product and you see how it ends up, it's worth it. And so, yeah, there's certain challenges like, you know, you're trying to get the band in a certain wardrobe, uh, but or you're trying to get the crowd or the extras to do a certain thing. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But a lot of the reenactments are they're highly stylized and they're just to give people an idea of what it kind of looked like. You know, I think Johnji was making a point that uh, for a lot of the pariah reenactments, uh, you know, we actually had Dave Derrick's son play him. Amazing in the film and a lot of well, people may well, not Dave know was that. actually there well, Dave was yeah. there and, and a lot of people may not know that or realize that but it's important yeah and uh you know uh and he actually wore the outfit that Dave Derrick wore in the powerless music video you know and and wow, that's badass and, and so those things were those are kind of just happy accidents that we were like, this is going to be really cool. And for the hardcore people, they're going to get, and they understand it. Uh, but, you know, Mio, Mio Alvarado's son plays Mio in the film. Oh, this, that, see, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's and there's a lot of, that, that's a lot yeah. of little trivia stuff that, yeah. you know, if, if we can pull it off, cool, you know, it even better. Um, but I like, was nerdy. I nerded out just watching Dave Derrick get on stage and yeah. and kind of talk to his son about how he acted on stage and why he did certain things. One of the cool things he tells his son is you grab the mic and you swirl your eyes like you're drunk and you just look at the ceiling and, and just seeing him do that and yeah. coach his son to play his part was just amazing. That was some of the fun stuff that was that we got to see firsthand. Well, I'm sure that I'm sure that Dave yeah. Derrick, when he when he was telling he was coaching, right? When I hear you you tell that story just in this roundtable, 
I want to point out that I don't feel like a, a lead singer who, you know, any kind of focal point, an actor, you know, it, whatever, who's playing a, a real person, uh, that real person telling them about what that is and, and why is, is not as important as understanding that. When Dave Derrick's telling his son to like roll his head around like he's nuts and half drunk and roll, you know, that's probably something that Dave Derrick didn't choreograph. Oh man, this is going to be my look on stage, guys. What do you think? And he's at rehearsal Ooh. going, "What do you think?" Yeah, <laughs> it's not a rehearsed choreograph right. move. It's just something that Dave realized that he did when he sang a certain part of a certain song, probably. Yeah. So for him to go, yeah, that's, I mean, I used to do that and who, there's no reason why I did that other than it was just something, it was like a twi a, a tick that I had when I sang, but mm -hmm. that's really cool, you know, and then um, uh, Christian Shields said that he just watched old videos of me and then when I see the teaser, he's he's getting it, he's getting it right, you know, some he of it's foot on the monitor and the whole, you know, and, and the pants help too. <laughs> uh, he, he was really excited. And of course, Christian Shields, he's like, when a, is he not? Uh, he's a hurricane in a bottle. That yeah. kid, yeah. Uh, he, he, when we, we talked to him, we had multiple pre-production meetings with him. I was going to say that we were constantly on the phone with him all together leading up to that shoot. Yeah. And so it was really important that he tried to get, you know, the, the mannerisms and the stage. And because the thing is, he was really adamant of, uh, and I remember John do that he would do this. He would say, I need to talk to Jason. I need to talk to Jason. I need to talk to Jason. And I said, wait, I said, no, you don't. I said, what you need to do is study the performances because if you talk to him ahead of time before the shoot, that's going to, whether you know it or not, it's going to taint your performance. Yeah, I don't want to get in his and, head. And, 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 and then what you need to do is just look at his, his performance from a videotape standpoint and mimic that as yeah. best you can for the camera. You know, yeah. you're not, you're, you're not at, you know, there's in all of these reenactments, there's no speaking lines. There's no, uh, there's no people actual dialogue recorded. You know, right. it's all told in background of, of, of narrative. But for on stage, you know, it's important that they try to get the performance right as best they can, as close as they can. You know, it's not 100 percent, but but he did a really good job of studying and he he watched lots and lots of footage. And so it's really commendable when somebody like that, you know, is committed to to doing this. And so I, I give him a lot of props. Yeah, he, he did. I feel like he did a good job. I mean, if there was, I, you know, now that I know you guys a lot better, I, I feel like you, and, and, and you know me a lot better too. I feel like if it wasn't right, then you would have called me and go, Hey, can you work with this guy? Or do yeah. you have, do you know someone who can play you in the film? Because this ain't right. But you know, that never happened. Thank God. But at the same time, I feel like you guys would have said that you're not, that's not right. Uh, it sounds to me like you, he didn't have any problem at all nailing it. No. One of the things though, we wanted him to be comfortable on stage. So Boudreaux and I talked and talked about how we could use one of the ideas that we had was to use his backing band 
as the rest of the toys because that would not only help him, but it would let him just concentrate on his part, knowing Comfort. that his guy because they they have stage presence already. So whatever yeah. footage that we would have captured, it would have it would have made sense. And we ended up that's what we ended up doing, and we made it work the best that we could. I, yeah, I, I think smart. all of this. I think all of this goes back to what I was saying earlier about uh, your attention to detail and your access to these types of people, and the fact that you had Dave Derrick's son playing Dave Derrick and wearing Dave Derrick's, you know, getup, and then you had somebody uh, who is, you know, a fan of Jason and willing to study Jason and put in the homework to to do the best job he could. Those are things that make the movie lend it a certain level of authenticity that you you couldn't have gotten without the input of the people that were actually there and in right. some cases their offspring you know so i love i love that and i think it goes back to what i was saying earlier about your commitment and attention to detail and and your your commitment to get it right and oh. uh, so again applause for for that it's, it's, you couldn't have made this movie in Hollywood. You know, you had no, to do it organically. It had to be a homegrown, organic, boots on the ground, go talk to the people that were there, get their kid to play a part, get Mio's son to play Mio, uh, find some a replica of Jason's leather pants or whatever. Uh, you, you couldn't have really manufactured this without that organic input from the people that were there. So... Props to you for for doing your homework. I'm glad that you guys had Jason Frankhauser in it because he he got to Austin as soon as he could, and with his band, his whole band moved from Lubbock and and that whole story. Uh, and there were quite a few bands that moved here because of what was happening at the back room. You guys probably heard that a bunch as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is great. That's a pilgrimage. That's people are hearing about what's happening in Austin at the back room. Is the reason they're going to uproot and move to Texas? It's crazy. I mean, or to Austin rather. Um, there were some bands though. Uh, none of them come to mind at the moment that actually uprooted from another state and moved to Austin because they they heard about what was happening. But uh, I'm glad that you guys had Jason uh, in the film. Uh, talking about his what what he soaked up through his eyes about the whole thing, but you know when the back room finally locked the doors and handed over the deed to the land, kind of a thing. Jason and I had permission, got permission to do a video walkthrough that he has that he can't find, couldn't find, and I told him to get with you to get the footage. Did you guys ever see that footage? No. That is super unfortunate yeah. because to give you a glimpse, if I didn't before, it was literally me and Jay, like I'm kind of narrating and Jason's holding the camera and I'm going front doors of the back room now shut down after 30 some odd years, blah, blah, blah. This is where this side is where you went to the, I was like, you know, a day in a life of walking Poor into guy. the back room. This is what happened. And this is where blah, blah, blah. This is where the t-shirts were hanging. Eventually Bobby McNeely, the whole time I'm telling the story about my version of what was happening at the time and how it affected my life. And we go all the way through full on detail. We went into the fucking bathrooms. Mm. 
Uh, and then we went out the back side door into the alley and, you know, we, and we visited the pole, both of them. And then we went into the back alley and we went into the dressing rooms. I, they might've been locked. Uh, maybe not. I can't. Anyway, it was as well documented as we could have. Uh, I don't know if it would have been exciting for everyone to see me and Jason Frankhauser do a walkthrough and a narration, but it was emotional for both of us a little bit to make that short film of just us doing it. And I was glad that he was willing to show up with a camera and do it with me that day. We did. Uh, we did try to get into emos, the emos now Correct. Uh, right. to try to, you know, let's go over there and let's see if we can shoot some footage. Well, the pole is still there. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so, uh, we never got the green light for that, ah, you know, and yeah. they would not let us inside the doors with recording equipment. Mm-hmm. And then there, it was like an insurance thing. And also like they wanted us to pay a certain fee and we just kind of left it as that. Well, like, well, we can still shoot outside of it. Yeah. <laughs> and so, <clears throat> so we actually took Dave through it and he kind of did a walk around of the building and he talked to outside in the parking lot and, and he actually went around to the back and he talked about, Excuse me. He talked about the marquee, um, lots pay phone. of yeah, the payphone. Uh, he talked about some really cool killer stuff, and it was actually that was originally going to be the cold open to the film was him talking about emos now as present day, and then it kind of starts off into the history lesson of the club. Um, Unfortunately, that was one of those things that we had to cut. That was uh, that was a hard, that's, hard that's thing too bad. That, we, that we had. I, re- I was really proud of that sequence. I really loved it, and uh, but ultimately we had to trim it for time. And and I had a lot of. I had one friend of mine, and her name is Rachel, and uh, she works for. Uh, she lives in LA. She works for a lot of Netflix shows, and she's an editor. and And she was the only non person in Texas to have seen a portion of this film just to give me feedback from an editorial standpoint. And, uh, and she said, maybe you should shift this guy around or, or maybe put him somewhere else or trim it or whatever. Uh, and, uh, so little by little, I was, I was trimming and trimming and trimming. And to the point where I was like, you know what? I don't even think it's at this point, it's even necessary. It, it kind of upsets the pacing of the film. And, yeah. uh, and, and so unfortunately that's, again, that's one of those scenes where, I, I loved it. I loved it. It was so good, but it ultimately had to come out. I had a whole sequence of people talking about the bathrooms, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it was actually going to be playing during the credits. And, uh, and and it was just, it was just too long. And that, that had to come out. And I've done, interview, also, I've done interviews in the men's room at the back I've room. I've seen those. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the payphone, you mentioned the payphone, Dave Pruitt and walking up and talking about the payphone. I mean, I've done countless interviews during the heyday where, you know, the bus is over on the other side. Where's the payphone? It's outside. And I've done countless interviews on that payphone. Forget I'm even involved at all. Can you imagine all of the heroes that we have that have done interviews on that payphone, pre-payphone? We're talking 70s, 80s, even early 90s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tons. I, yeah. I did. I did enjoy the fact that you, okay, so you you were able to include uh, some photos of of the the vacated 
back room. It looked yeah. like it was kind of going through demolition. Yeah. And uh, man, just seeing those photos took me back. I mean, memories galore. And the one that I really that really caught my attention was there is a photo of uh, the main bar on the game room side. And right in front of that main bar is a pole with a circular table around it. Mm-hmm. And that was like prime real estate. If you if you got to the back room and you were able to commandeer that circular table right in front of the bar, that was a good night right there. <laughs> I remember that one. I haven't yeah. seen that image in, you know, decades. And man, it took me right back to... Mio handed me a beer or Mark Oliveras or, or, you know, one of the, or, or, uh, Max, you know, being back there and handing me a beer and being around that circular table. It was a good night. If you got the circular table, (laughs) I did appreciate that you were able to get some photos of the building from the interior, uh, because it really was a walk through memory lane. People can tell you the stories all day long. But to see the visual and go, oh, yeah, I remember that. Oh, yeah, I hung out with so-and-so right there at that spot right there. One of my original ideas that I wanted to start from the very beginning of the film when we first started it. And to a point, we I kind of succeeded in getting it done. But ultimately, I, I pulled it, the idea back was I wanted to recreate a 3D environment of the back room so that people could we could kind of virtually move the camera through the space you know and we could go to the game side and we could uh go into the back video game areas and and the pool tables and we can go into the bathrooms you know and 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 a a buddy of mine actually built the 3d space uh of it but but then it kind of became of well, is it going to be backroom 1985 or is it going to be backroom 1995? And if it's backroom 2006, then so and each of those things, each of those different eras takes a lot of time to build and takes a lot of hence money to build. And it just wasn't working. And then plus, I thought it was maybe going to be too polished when we're showing all of this VHS footage and photos. And, you know, it just it just kind of seemed to stick out you know, too much. So I ultimately made the call to, to take those out, but I wanted, you know, if, if, if budget wasn't an issue, I would have had them done, of course, but I, I did want to give a sense of the interior, of course, through Dave Pruitt's footage, we'd got a lot of that through a lot of just regular fan footage and photos. We were able to do that, but getting those photos of when it was starting to be demolished, that was somebody that had sent me all of those. They were on the wrecking crew. And wow. They sent me all of those photos and I still remember seeing, I think they kept a lot of the video game stuff, like the, like the, the driving games and stuff. Like they kept some of that. And, uh, and they said, yeah, man, check out all the photos, you know, there all the stuff. And, and, and it was, it was heartbreaking to see like, oh man, I remember when this was happening, you know, driving by and seeing the demolished building and, uh, and, and, and now I was like, but you know what? It needs to go in there. And it, it, I mean, if, if, even if I don't have video footage of it, at least we have some photos of it. Yeah. And, and plus, everybody was talking about it. And so I think it was good reinforcement about, you know, it finally happened. It, it's, it's gone. But, you know, it, at least we have some. Kind of, and, you know, I think it was, was it Eddie? We, we tracked down the marquee 
Oh one, yeah, and then, that's right. And on the way, we the week that we were going to shoot footage with the person that owned it, it was broken by by the time we got to the shoot date. So More like we, destroyed, we didn't go, but yeah, the, <laughs> yeah. The, the plexiglass like front of the sign you you had. Somebody had it and they reached out to us and we had set up the entire thing. We were going to shoot at the person's house and uh, there was a disagreement between people and somebody broke it to get the other person back. And we we're just like, what? <laughs> like, that was when we were going to shoot it that day or that week. And we didn't get to it in time. The marquee is, uh, was kind of the nail in the coffin. I remember driving by and seeing the building just kind of, decaying you know mm -hmm. over time you could tell it was no longer active it was shut down and the marquee would have like you know a piece of one of the letters still dangling off of yeah. it so, you know it was like oh my god that to me signaled the end of the era because you used to drive by it all the time and look at the marquee to see who was playing this weekend or what road show was coming up on a you know a month from now or whatever and when that marquee stopped giving you the news of the club that's when you knew it was over was yeah. there ever was there ever like you know back room closed thank you for 33 years on that was something like that ever on that marquee oh I'm i believe it at some point somebody i think on one of the days that they were going to do the final shows they put like 30 years or thank you okay. for 30 years or something like that yeah, yeah. i remember yeah. that yeah yeah, yeah. Well, wow. guys, man, I could talk to you all day long about this because we've all it, it's such a subject. It's a subject that's so near and dear to all four of us and and people beyond the people in this room, for sure. Um, I, I applaud you for doing such a great job with the film. I haven't seen the whole thing, but the little preview clips that you were able to share with us look fantastic. Your attention to detail is evident. Uh, the cast of characters you rounded up is awesome. Uh, so I, we wish you the very best with this film. All of Austin is cheering for you. We got our fingers crossed. We want to know when you get that email and we want to know when we're having the screen premiere, because that's going to be a reunion I want to be part of. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I think it'll be a shot heard around the world when that, when Absolutely. that day comes, whether, <laughs> whether, even if it gets, uh, you know, doesn't get accepted, I, I still feel like the film will rise. Oh yeah, and the film will be released, mm -hmm. and uh, and and brought to attention, if not internationally, at least nationally, because it touched a lot of people. Yeah, I think that's, you know, I, I think it's going to speak to a lot of music fans elsewhere as well, yeah. not just in Austin. Absolutely. Um, you know, I know that there's different places around the country and different venues where you could do the same exact thing to all these different other venues, you know, talk about the history of this one place in Jersey or this one place in Seattle or whatever. And then, but, you know, and I think I would be interested in learning about the history of a club that's in Seattle. If it, if it pertains to, if it's music related like that, um, you know, and I think that's, it's going to translate to other people elsewhere as well because of the national touring acts that went through there. And just plus the overall kind of drama that happened with our cast of characters that throughout, throughout the, the 33 years. And so, you know, 
I'm really hoping that, you know, if this if, if the South by thing does not happen, there will be other opportunities and other ways for yeah. us to get this film out there. If it does, though, it's going to it's going to give us the potential to go even further with it. And that's that's really my hope is that I really want South by to be the world premiere of it. And obviously South by, you know, they want this. They want all of their things to be the world premiere, obviously. Yeah. Um, but to have my uh, my film that I directed along with my core team that helped produce it to premiere in a an Austin film festival slash music festival slash tech giant that it is in the hometown of everybody that touched it and lived it, you know that that would be the huge first kind of embarkment of you know. The, the crowning of the this this film that's going to start to go out into you know because we actually are going to apply it to other festivals as well yeah um uh, to other you know seattle tribeca all that stuff you know but south by is our first and foremost main target and uh you know as long as that i get that email any hopefully soon that uh you know because i, I it was by far the biggest project like i said the, the biggest project i've ever done in my career I couldn't have done it without Johnju and Ray and Tammy and Adam and my entire army of DPs and my family and our families. And, you know, it, 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 it's, it, it's something that I really, really wanted to do and do it well. And now four years later, I'm excited that you guys are excited. I'm happy that you guys have loved what you've seen because I respect you guys and I respect the venue and I respect the love that people have for this place and the community that formed from it, you know? So it, it's, it's certainly been a challenge, but I think now that, you know, we're literally at the five yard line, just trying to get it finished. Yeah. It's, it's, it's exciting and it's scary and awesome all at the same time. That's a good feeling, man. That's a good yeah. feeling. Well, I know we're all rooting for you. The entire city is rooting for you. And I think when, when the rest of the world gets a chance to see this, they are going to validate all of your hard work and effort uh, because I think it's a great story and it's told very well. And as you said, if this was a documentary about the whiskey or CBGBs, uh, we would all be interested in that. But the fact that this is near and dear to our heart, it's local, it's organic. It was done by you guys. And uh, I think you did a great, great, great job. And I'm, I'm really proud to be a part of it. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm proud of what you're going to put forth out there as far as depicting a chapter in my life, Jason's life, everybody in Austin. This is the thing where we're going to be able to say, oh, yeah, when I, when I was living in Austin from years so-and-so to so-and-so, this is what I did. <laughs> yeah, for better or worse, and I'm still here. Yeah, so, big, yeah. big part of our lives and personal growth or Absolutely. or personal stunt, stunted growth. <laughs> it's a crazy <laughs> fucking place, you know, yeah. could have fucking killed most people, you know. Absolutely. So the, the growth of our of our of our lives, of our personal lives and uh, in some way, some sort of springboard for who we are. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. We wish so, you all the luck with it, man. You job, guys have guys. poured your hearts and soul into it. It's and it's evident. It's very evident. And I think everybody else is going to agree once they have the opportunity to see it. So 
Job well done, fellas. On behalf of my co-host, Jason McMaster, I'm Metal Dave Glesser, along with our special guest today, Boudreau Partita and John Jew from Bloody and Bruised, the untold story of the back room on the Talk Louder podcast. 